0: My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and now fatherhood, and backward to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is The Villain of the Story, Part 2, and joining me to discuss the post-crisis evil businessman iteration of Superman's ultimate opponent, Lex Luthor, is returning guest, Scott Honig. Scott, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited about this one. As am I. I'm always excited, but this one this one is, is a little bit more personal because this is the Lex I grew up with, and... We're going to get into so much, but it was really fascinating to now go back and look at at some of these stories that I had read as a kid as my first, as my introduction to this character, uh, but to now do so with the context of the pre-crisis Lex that I've explored in the past couple of episodes. And it really, I just have an entirely different perspective now. So I'm really excited to compare notes with you. The question that I'm asking everyone in these episodes is, is whether or not you consider Lex to be Superman's ultimate opponent. That's how I'm describing him uh, in these episodes. But where does Lex fall for you within the, the hierarchy of Superman antagonists? Uh,
1: for me, he's always been number one. Um, you know, it seems as though creatively he's been poised that way from almost the, the beginning. Um, but in, in watching the evolution of Superman as a character and then sort of Lex Luthor along with him, it just seems like he's the one that everybody keeps coming back to who's, you know, even even when they're using other villains from Superman's rogues gallery, it, it almost always seems to be Lex behind them, pulling the strings in some way, shape or form, always looming. His, his next scheme is always on the horizon, even if he's not the A plot of the story. So yeah, for me, he's just, he's right there front and center as he should be.
0: Indeed. That's why he's getting all these episodes devoted to him. And the follow-up question to that is: When you think of Lex Luthor, which is the version that first comes to
1: mind? Uh, so these days, uh, I see and hear the the Bruce Tim Justice League version of Lex. Clancy Brown's voice is in my head. Um, he is a buttoned-up businessman. He's bald we've seen a couple iterations where he's not bald. Um I like him bald. Um and he is he's almost always very cool and calm and collected so that when he gets frazzled, it really means something. But but it's that buttoned up businessman Lex that is is the version, but specifically the animated one from, from Bruce Tim.
0: So I may have said this in one of the prior episodes I've already forgotten, but, but for me, and I'll talk about this more next week, but for me, when I think of Lex, I do instantly go to the Michael Rosenbaum Smallville iteration. But the, the post-crisis, 80s and 90s evil businessman looms very large. And within the depictions that you and I are going to talk about over the next two hours, probably. <laughs> yep. Within, right. within all of those the the Superman the animated series and Justice League uh, iteration, voiced by Clancy Brown and the the Bruce Tim design, that DC animated universe version of Lex Luthor to me I think represents truly the best of of this version of the character yeah, because I think that we'll get into more you know we'll get into all of this a lot more. But if there's one problem, like main issue that I had with the comics version of Lex during this time is that there is almost no humanity or charisma to the character and i feel like with the animated universe version you at, you at least get that that charisma that magnetism where you feel you know you feel kind of what's emanating from this person and and how they could have built all of this and he's fun to watch and he's fun to listen to in a way that the comics version though used effectively in a lot of ways i'm not putting it down but there was a little bit of a roadblock that I had in terms of really investing in that character in a, in a way that I was able to with the animated version. So for me, that's number one. There's also, you know, that physicality too to the character that you don't see in the schlubbier version that we get, especially immediately post-crisis. So I, I'm with you within this episode that we're talking about the Clancy Brown version. My number one.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think I think the quality that that I'm reading, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that that version that distilled version is it's charming he has a charm to him he is uh as you said he's physically imposing not to the level of superman because he's got no superpowers but he's in good shape he wears really nice clothes and he's a he's a decent looking guy and he just oozes charm which he can turn on and off as as needed to make whether it's to make business deals and' we're, I'm sure we'll get to political deals um, and I think that that serves the character really well in ways that he's not served when he isn't charming when they when they make him look a little uglier schlubbier you know heavier those tufts of red hair that I don't think do him any favors um, there's just there's only so much I it's believable that he can accomplish with that physicality uh, that I, I, I'm with you it, it strains credibility
0: yeah, for sure. So I think we're on the same page with that. So yeah. when when last we left our exploration of Lex Luthor uh, at the end of the pre-crisis period, that was the Lex who had grown up in Smallville and hated Superboy. He blamed him for his baldness. He uh, was bent on, on world domination. He was the mad scientist. He graduated from uh, prison greys to the purple and green jumpsuit finally to the the green war suit and and also had this very surprising and emotionally resonant arc which we talked about which i talked about with rich roney uh, on lexor this planet that had sort of adopted him and he became the hero to these people and not to rehash that episode but the thing that most surprised me by reading all of those pre-crisis stories was was how much humanity uh, the character had and how much of a of a personal grudge it was between Superman and Lex. I, I wasn't expecting that as much. I thought it was going to be a little bit more superficial, I guess. But I really found myself like buying into this conflict between them in a way I wasn't expecting. So now we are in this post-crisis world in this episode. So Crisis on Infinite Earths has happened. The DC universe has been, or the multiverse now, has been consolidated into, the, into one single universe, a new timeline, a new continuity. And we have the John Byrne Man of Steel miniseries that's reintroducing Superman and the Superman mythology. And we've talked about this on the show before, but now Superman is is the sole survivor of the planet Krypton. He has a more modest power set. Uh, Clark is really who he is. Superman is what he can do, and on and on. And hand in hand with that, we have a a real reinvention of Lex Luthor into this, again, this post-crisis, the evil businessman version of the character. And with that comes this tableau that plays out in a number of the stories that we looked at. And it's the the image of Superman floating outside Lex's office. And in all of these iterations, Lex gives a speech to more or less the same effect. I own this city. I built Metropolis. Its people work for me. I'm above the law. As he says in Superman for All Seasons, Famous fleeting, Lex Luthor is forever. Superman's responses vary. In most of them, he floats silently. In Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, he talks a lot. (laughs) And he actually has one of my favorite lines that actually puts that version at the top of my list. But in any event, as I was looking at these stories, we kept coming back to this scene playing out. And I feel like it's a great representation of... Of this new dynamic between them, what what was your take on it?
1: It's funny. So so when you originally told me what issues and we were going to read and what episodes we were going to watch, I was really prepared for there to be just sort of you know you pop in, you get a story, you pop out. But there were far more connections between the different stories than I anticipated. Uh, so. Yes, we saw the scene of Superman outside Lex's penthouse office uh, multiple times, which I mean, never gets old. I, I will always enjoy it. There's something about there's something about the visual of it um, like uh, in it, my favorite actually was in the Superman Adventures issue. Superman Adventures 27, which is done in the animated style of of Bruce Timm written by Mark Miller before he was Mark Miller. Um, and. Uh, And Lex Luthor says, you know, one day Lex Luthor is going to look down upon Metropolis and everyone is going to look up to me. Right. So, and again, you know, playing with that idea of of height and and, and elevation over the city. And, you know, the only person higher than Lex Luthor in that, that tower is Superman because he can fly. And so there's, and Superman doesn't, Exploit that necessarily He doesn't rub it in Lex's face But just by being there Just by by floating outside the window Just higher than Lex's standard It kind of highlights that no matter how Important Lex wants to Believe that he is, no matter how much He believes that he owns The city, he calls it my city Several times Superman will always be Higher And I really, really I really enjoyed that. Really enjoyed that.
0: As, as did I. And you summed up perfectly why that works as such a great representation for this relationship. And the other thing that came to my mind was, you know, I was thinking about what we lost with this post-crisis reinvention Certainly the scientific mind is one of them. He still engages in experiments, but he has others do his bidding, right? So he's not the one who's creating bizarro in Man of Steel number five. He has one of his scientists doing it. So, you know, he's still pulling the strings, he's still ultimately responsible, but it's not his hand directly. So you lose that. You lose him out in the field engaging in a physical confrontation with Superman. There's no more green war suit, although we get we get some nods to that in, in the stories mm-hmm. that we looked at. And you do lose that the personal. The personal history, uh, you know, as much as I've, I've, you know, poked fun at, at uh, you know, that the Silver Age story that gave Lex's origin and, and you know, why he blames Superboy for the baldness and the fact that that's the root of the antagonism and all that. Mm. But still, right, it was an attempt to create this this long standing feud between them. So it's like, okay, these are the things we've lost, but but what have we gained? And one of the things that I kept coming back to with with that scene of of Superman floating is, bear with me on this, but there's almost I don't know if intimacy is the right word, but there's something about those two and, and especially Lex, right? This is Lex being himself. And it's only with Superman. <laughs> I mean, I guess you can argue when he's with his minions, right? That's when he's dropping his guard as well. But there, it, there's a whole other level, though, when when it's just him and Superman and that public facade that has led the people of Metropolis to believe he's this great philanthropist and benefactor, you know, all of that melts away and he shows who he really is. And it's just with Superman through that glass. It's, there's something very, very
1: effective about that. I agree. And I think that that points exactly to what we gain post-crisis. That is, I think, a superior depiction of Lex than we got pre-crisis. Pre-crisis because Lex is much more in the field. You know, Superman versus Battle Suit, right? Which which puts them on—I don't want to say equal footing, but but certainly much closer to equal footing. Um, I think that it's it it simplifies the relationship to you know a hero and a villain punching each other until one of them succumbs, um, which works for the time. Uh, and I think once we got to the eighties, I think we what we gain is is nuance and Luther works really, really well as the person pulling the strings, not the one in the laboratory conducting the experiments himself, but the one who hires the most brilliant and morally questionable scientists to do it for him, or brilliant scientists whose ethics are in the right place, but whom he's blackmailing, or he is paying a stupid amount of money to you know, to do these things for him. And what it gives him is plausible deniability, which is something in the pre-crisis he doesn't have. And that's what allows him to have that intimacy with Superman in those flybys, because he knows that he can admit to Superman's face exactly what he's up to, and no one will believe even Superman. He even says in, in For All Seasons... He says, even those who were present last night he did something will will doubt that it ever happened. So he was playing with this whole idea of, of you know alternate facts or uh, you know some of the things that have been in the news uh, in recent years. He's he's really playing with that years and years before, and and to me that's what makes him fascinating and terrifying at the same time.
0: Well said. And you mentioned alternate facts and and. You know, I might as well get this out of the way. I mean, this is a lex modeled very much after Trump. so much so. one of the stories we, we read was the unauthorized biography of Lex Luther, and the cover is is the spitting image of the art of the cover to the art of the deal. And we talked about this too when we when we covered the the Jeff Loeb Joe Kelly era in the earliest episodes of this podcast. and we talked about the president Lex arc. And and how, you know, it, it was eerie some of the ways in which it paralleled what at the time, you know, we were we were still living through. So and well, still living through in, in other ways. So, yeah, to sort of see all of that play out, but especially with what we're going through now, it, it really just puts a whole other spin on, on, on these stories. So just to give people we, we've mentioned a bunch of them already, but I'll, I'll lay out what what you and I read and watched in in anticipation of this. So John Byrne's Man of Steel number four, which was the Lex-centric issue of the miniseries. Um, I also did reread uh, number five, which is where Lex creates Bizarro. As did I. Oh, good man. Look at that. (laughs) I didn't even put it on the list and you still read it.
1: It just led right into it. So I I kept going.
0: Superman for all seasons by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale number three, which was the Lex-centric issue of that. And we've talked about it on the show before, and I did a whole Patreon episode devoted to Four all seasons. But, you know, that was such a gorgeous miniseries and each one was from the perspective of and narrated by a different member of the Superman supporting cast and and Lex drove issue number three and it really gave a lot of great insight and what's really cool about it is it slides right in continuity wise after Man of Steel number four so after after that issue Lex uh, Lex is arrested for the first time right and then in in Superman for all seasons you get to see him leaving the jail and plotting his next move so it's it it's nice Mm -hmm. how that kind of uh connected there. The John Byrne miniseries, World of Metropolis, uh, issue number one, which was the Perry White-centric issue. I also reread number two, which dealt with Lois. And there were a few pages that I'll mention that uh, shed additional light onto the, the Lex character. Uh, very curious to get your take on, on, on that. Mm-hmm. Superman number two and number mm-hmm. nine by John Byrne, which I feel like both of those, especially Superman number two, I feel like if you're looking for a quintessential post-crisis Lex story story, That's the one. This is the famous cover where Lex is sitting in front of the giant computer screen, and it says, Clark Kent is Superman, and you see how he gets to that point and and how he uh, reacts to that. The Unauthorized Biography, which, man, I got to tell you, I I read that as a kid, as a little kid. I remember having that prestige format one-shot, and I didn't know what I was doing with that. (laughs) It's definitely a more adult, more mature uh, story, but a lot of drama. It's not very action-packed, and I... I remember as a kid just not knowing what to make of it, and I never really went back to it. But man, I enjoyed it now. it's really good. And, oh, Superman Adventures, number 27, like you said, that's the, the comic that's set in the continuity and style of the animated series. Uh, and then as far as adaptations, uh, The Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, I know there was an episode that I, I called your attention to. Uh, same with Superman, the animated series and the uh the ruby spears cartoon i know you don't have access to that and i i did a yeah. whole, oh you were able to do it oh good man okay. all right, right yeah. on. very cool so uh so those were the things that that you and i uh i took a look at the one other thing that i want to mention because i said at the top that this was the lex that i first met and that's kind of true but kind of not because when i started reading i was dealing with lex the second and we did, you know, when you and I talked about the, you know, the early triangle era, we, we, we got into all of this, but there was this whole storyline where, where Lex was, was dying from, from kryptonite radiation poisoning. And, um, he fakes his death and clones himself a new body and emerges as his Luther's own. Luther's
1: brain. That's right.
0: They saved <laughs> Luther's brain. So it's like, he comes back as his, as his own Australian son with this flowing mane of red hair, an Australian accent, and takes his father's place and embarks upon a relationship with the the post-crisis Matrix version of Supergirl, that's the Lex I met. And I remember in one of those Funeral for a Friend or Reign of the Superman issues, when I was first starting to read, I remember we got Lex's inner monologue and he sort of recapped his history, which was smart because they probably figured a lot of people were, <laughs> were starting with the death of Superman, as, as I did, of course. And uh so like I, I got a little bit of a recap through that. So I had some context for it, but you know, that's the Lex that I started with. So, you know, it's it's been more so over the course of this podcast and some of the other episodes that I've done where I've you know gotten a better sense of the true Lex that that gave way to that to that version.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean <laughs> I wouldn't advise anybody new to Superman to start there, if they're interested in Lex Luthor as a character, not that you had any control over it. Cause that's just, the, those were the stories coming out at the time. Um, yeah, for me, it was, it was Super Friends, the, you know, the, the cartoon from the late seventies and, and early eighties. Uh, and that was a Lex who was in his like purple skin tight thing with the, the green sort of cross straps Uh, And he was the leader of the Legion of Doom. And he stood behind a podium and looked out over all these other villains and plotted ways to take down the, the super friends. Uh, And then of course the, the Kenner superpowers action figures that that came out around the same time, but that was green and purple battle suit Lex. So in my head, like that, that was Lex. He just, he wore a battle suit and he fought Superman. And, And again, for my child brain, it was, it was simplistic enough. It was good versus evil and it worked yeah, I mean, you know, I, very quickly, I was at a point, even, even around the time of the death of Superman, I was already getting into my teen years, and I was ready for something a little bit more sophisticated. So I'm glad that the, the, this post-crisis version existed, and, and now getting to revisit some of those things, and even some of the TV shows that, I mean, I hadn't seen a Lois and Clark episode in since it aired. I hadn't gone back, so that was a, that was a treat to get to see John Shea as, uh, as Lex there. Um, which was which was a lot of fun, a lot
0: of fun. It's just a shameless plug here. But, you know, my wife and I, we've done a, a so far a four episode run on my Patreon page. Uh, we rewatched and discussed all of season one of Lois and Clark, and we will return to cover the remaining seasons. But we have four episodes on season one of Lois and Clark. So if anyone is curious and, and wants to listen, I, I would encourage that. But mm. yeah, I mean, I'll, I will say for purposes of those episodes and for this one, it really yeah. was interesting to go back and look at Lois and Clark and especially that version of Lex. And. You know, going back to what we were saying before, I, I don't know. I don't want to go. I don't want to go so far. But the 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 animated series version that we get, maybe we would have gotten there without the John Shea version. But I don't know because I think that version went a long way. It was still, you know, he was hamming it up, but not. It wasn't so over the top. There was some. No, I disagree. <laughs> I, well, all right. In fairness, okay. So the last episode that people heard. Uh, Tyler from the Krypton Report, he and I talked about the pre-crisis depictions of Lex in TV, film, and animation. And the last batch of viewing that we had was the Superboy TV series, where actor Sherman Howard played the most maniacal version of Lex (laughs) Luthor you've ever seen. So by comparison, the John Shea Lex was grounded and subtle, (laughs) nuanced, okay?
1: So it's it's all all relative. All right, I promise I will go and watch an episode of that Superboy series just just to compare. It, it, but I mean, everybody on on Lois and Clark to me seemed seemed a bit cartoonish, and I get it. I you know I, I also have to put it into the context of you know when that show was made, and 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 you know we didn't have superhero movies and TV shows the way that we do now, so it was picking up cues from comics and, 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 you know, creators who had grown up on those comics making a TV show based on the things that they love. So I get it. And it was still, it was still really enjoyable. I loved seeing a young Terry Hatcher. I loved seeing a young Dean Kane, who I thought was, I always thought was really great in the role. Um, I liked John Shea's performance. I liked the way it was written. I just had to keep reminding myself just like nineteen ninety three or ninety four, whatever it was, you know, and and so once I once I got that, I was okay. I was okay, but yeah. it was happy. It was,
0: it was. But yeah, you know, you got to walk before you can run. And I guess I right. bring that up because I, I think that there there was there was that charisma there in a way that I don't think you were seeing in the comics necessarily at that time and the time before. So I, I think in that sense, you know, maybe it it broke broke a little bit of ground there. But oh, going back to. The scene of, of Superman outside the window, the reason I said that, uh, the version from the Lois and Clark pilot is my favorite. So earlier in the pilot, when Clark meets Lex, they have this whole discussion about why the LexCorp Tower is the tallest building in Metropolis. And Lex has this whole thing about how he wants people to look up. And so at the end of that scene, uh, at the end of the pilot, uh, as Superman's flying away, he's like, if you need to find me, just look up. And it just, it's just that jab. Now, on the one hand, you're like, buddy, you got to be a little bit more careful about your secret identity here. You just had a conversation about this as Clark. But anyway. <laughs> yeah,
1: but it was a good stinger. It's a really good stinger.
0: It was really good. I mean, look, in four All Seasons, again, Superman just floats there. He doesn't say anything. In Superman, the animated series, he really just stares Lex down and gives him the silent treatment until the very end when he crushes that, um, you know, the, the statue. And he says, I'll be watching you, Luther. It's like, okay. Uh, but I thought, yeah, as far as, as, far as one-liners go, uh, I, I thought that version uh, and Lois and Clark really, really packed a punch. It was a good, good line. It was a good, a good button to that scene.
1: I agree. I agree. Um, so, so wanted to get your take on this because one of the connections that I saw in a bunch of these that again, I think really works for this version of of Lex, a more nuanced version for a, a perhaps a more sophisticated audience as the character sort of grows up with us. Um, it seems to me in almost all of these iterations, each issue and, and episode, that what Luther's trying to do is less to fight Superman or defeat Superman and more to undermine Superman. I think that, that he, because he wants so desperately to be, uh, everybody's uh, idol. He wants to. He wants everybody to look up to him. He wants everybody to revere him, to worship him. He has to take Superman down a few pegs. He understands that Superman is at least where he is, if not higher, and he hates that. And so, the things that he does, the schemes that he comes up with, are not intended, at least on the face, to kill Superman or to to get him off the off the field, but just to sort of show the people of Metropolis and the world that Superman's not as great as you think he is. Was that something that you noticed as well? I I think that's fair
0: for the most part. I, I mean, I think, you know, there are instances where he, he does go so far as to try to take him out. But I, I do think generally speaking, looking at the big picture of this, I think what you said is accurate. And I, I was thinking about this a lot too, of like, what, what does he want? Right. In, in all of these stories. And Reading all of them together, I guess, like yourself, you know, a few connection points in, uh, I'm trying to think where, where's the best place to start this? I mean, there's this idea of everyone having a price and this actually wasn't in, uh, although that does come up in the indecent proposal, uh, uh, thing there, but, uh, in action 600, which you and I did not read for this, but I covered it in uh, an earlier episode last year that I did on, on the John, on the John Byrne Mm -hmm. era. But there's this short story in Action Comics 600 by Byrne where uh, Lex is trying to blackmail Maggie Sawyer with evidence of her homosexual lifestyle. And he says to her, he's like, you know, one of the sad realizations of my life is that everyone has a price. And again, you see that in in Superman number nine where he makes that indecent proposal to, uh, you know, to Jenny Hubbard, the waitress. So this idea of everyone having a price he offers Superman money. He offers to put him on retainer in their first encounter in Man of Steel number four, in Superman the Animated Series. In that in that scene that we've been we've been talking about, he you know again similarly offers to to hire Superman. Right? He's like I've you know I've started to realize like why set my sights on just one city? I can have the whole world. And with the being of your power, we we'll think of what we could accomplish together. So you know this idea of, of everyone having a price, except seemingly Superman. So there's that. And one thing that really resonated in Superman Adventures number 27 was, there's a lot going on in that issue, but a very poignant moment where he goes to uh, the statue that has been erected in, in the honor of Superman. And he says, like, you know, my name is, or I don't know if of Mercy says it to him or he says it, but the fact that, you know, his name is on all of these buildings and hospital wings and things like that. And he's like, yeah, but it didn't cost Superman anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then finally, going back to uh, For All Seasons, Lex frames all of this, the beginning of the issue, as a love story, not between a man and a woman, but but between a man and a city. So he views this relationship with Metropolis, right, as a love story, and feels betrayed by the fact that they have now gravitated towards Superman. And... I guess this kind of goes back to like he if it is a love story, you know, he doesn't know how to love, and we see that time and time again, and it's, <clears> so, it's so twisted. But I, I but I guess this idea if he views it as a love story, he feels like everyone has a price, but he can't get he can't get a hold, he can't get an angle on this guy. All of the city's attention now has been diverted to Superman. So yeah, I mean, to tie this back to what you were saying, it's like yeah, I mean, to just try to kill Superman, I, I don't know that that's necessarily the ultimate. The ultimate goal here i mean i really do think it is more more to undermine more to recapture that position that he had once occupied and i guess it's like if he does it through killing superman i don't think he would be opposed to that but i don't but i I think that's secondary like i really think it is the position that he holds
1: i agree completely and i'm going to take it one step further i think you're absolutely right about lex Luthor lacking the capacity to love uh he thinks he loves his city, but really it, it, it's about ownership. And, and that's why, and again, that's why businessman Lex works so well for me. The only way he knows how to have a relationship is, is when it's commerce. And what makes him so bitter, and, and increasingly so as this era goes on, is that he has spent so much money to make Metropolis his. That when he does not feel he's getting the return on his investment, he loses his mind. He loses his mind. So when Superman comes along and the people worship him to the extent that they do, and he spent no money, right? He spent no money. Um, Lex doesn't know what to make of that. He doesn't understand that relationship because Superman's relationship with the city, I think, is of genuine love. And care. Superman cares about everybody, everybody, and the city cares about him in return. And Lex does not understand why they can't do the same for him. In his mind, those two things are the same: love and, and commerce. That's the same, right? Right. Right.
0: Yeah. No. It, exactly. And and the other thing too is when when Lex says, you know, it didn't cost Superman anything. I mean, I don't think Superman would look at it as a cost. But at the same time, it's that he, he is giving of his of his time. He gave his life. In, in, in one of the stories so you know and it's like that i don't think like you said like it's just all about the money and the bottom line for lex mm-hmm. the idea of like he's giving his his heart and his soul and his body to the people of metropolis that's that's like nothing right like that doesn't even compute for him
1: yeah um and 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 superman tries to explain that to lex in in one of i think i think of all the the reading that we did My absolute favorite moment. Again, it comes in Superman Adventures 27, which was the last place I expected it to come. I had not read that series previously, um, but I found it was such a beautiful distillation of of these characters. Um, Superman says to Lex, you were blessed with a brilliant mind. You could make the world such a wonderful place. Stop wasting your life trying to destroy it. And Lex still doesn't get it.
0: Yeah, I want to give a shout out to listener uh, Douglas because he, he's he been talking to me about uh, uh, about that series for a while because like yourself, it is never kind of on my radar. I might spend some yeah. more time on it down the line because I really like too. I really liked it too. And yeah, I mean, it's funny because right, you know, like you said, you know, Superman has this whole speech to him about like, think about what you could do if you weren't so fixated on me. And there's this moment where, you know, Lex, you know, kind of takes a beat and mercy is like, hey, like, yeah, maybe you could take a vacation or something like that. <laughs> Poor mercy. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we did our animated series episodes, we, you know, we kept coming back to Mercy. We were, you know, really, really taken with uh, the the long-suffering uh, soldier. Great of, character. Of Lex great there. character. It's just so great. But, you know, and for a moment, it's like, you don't know if maybe the message landed. But Lex's takeaway is like, no, like, if I've spent this much time and this much money and I haven't gotten the results I want, it just means I need to spend more time and more money. And it is it is heartbreaking, right? But along the same track, you know, what was interesting, there were a couple of stories, a couple instances. One was in Superman Adventures and the other was in the unauthorized biography where Superman, uh, Superman, Lex is asked point blank, like, why? Why yeah. are you the way that you are? That sounds like Michael Scott from, uh, from yeah. the office when he's talking to Toby. <laughs> <laughs> I hate so much about the things you choose to be. <laughs> but and Superman Adventures 27, you know, Superman says, I and mean, I'm paraphrasing, but basically like, why do you hate me so much? Why are you doing this? <laughs> and I think the story is called How Much Can One Man Hate?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: Lex just says, if you have to ask, you'll never know. Yeah. And in the Unauthorized Biography, for anyone who's not familiar with this, oh, it's such a great story. But mm-hmm. again, this proceed format one-shot about this alcoholic, you know, down-on-his-luck novelist who starts writing a book about Lex and essentially uncovers uh you know his, his his beginnings here the fact that he killed his parents for the insurance money and that was how he how he got his start and of course lex gets wind of this and has the journalist killed and frames clark kent for it, which is an interesting spin on all of this yeah we'll talk about <laughs> um but before the journalist is killed he has this face-to-face with lex and what's so funny about that story is lex is not in it for most of it nope but a couple of other very, than in flashback Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Uh, but so then he has this this sit down with, with Lex and, you know, Lex is like, oh, you know, I'm just going to pay you a kill fee uh, and, you know, we can have an interview and, you know, what do you want to know? I'll answer anything if that weren't a clear sign that this guy's days were numbered. <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> but Anyway, so at, at the end, the guy says, like, what? Why? Like, why do you do all of this? And do you remember what, what Lex's retort was? Not well, off the
1: top of my head, man.
0: That was that was interesting. I had to go back myself because as I was preparing for this, I'm like, what did he say to that? <laughs> and maybe that's telling, right? That it didn't necessarily stick with us. But he says, life is short. That's his response. And he talks about his parents and how they had this self-defeating attitude. And I guess they didn't aspire to greater. And in For All Seasons, he talks about in his narration yeah. about how like self-pity is like the worst thing that you can do. And that was one of the lessons yeah. that he learned as, as he was coming up. Uh, so... I and why do I bring this up? I, I guess the, this idea that I don't know, I guess it is kind of ultimately on us to discern the meaning in all of this because in those instances where the character is presented with an opportunity to fully articulate <laughs> what this is all about, you know, we don't always get there. I think the the love story between a man and a city in four all seasons, I think that spells out a good bit of it. And I'm not saying it needs to be spelled out, but I just think it's interesting as we're talking about like what like what is all of this about? in the instances where it could be you know we our hands could be held it's they're not which i thought was interesting
1: no i agree with you and and that that idea really worked for me up to a point and i'll t- and i'll and i'll delineate where that point was. so i actually on its face i really like the idea that lex is just naturally ambitious beyond all measure And the fact that his parents weren't, that they were sort of content with the the ordinary, the mundane life that they had continued to irk him to the point where he needed them out of the picture for two reasons. Number one, so that they're not this constant reminder of Lex's own mediocrity, um, but also, as you said, because it provides startup capital. Um, so, so it works, and and the fact that he now lives with that resentment that any time that he feels like, on Mercy's prompting, to take a vacation, to slow down, to give up, it comes back to him in that moment that I will not be my parents. I will not. Go, I will not go down the easy road because I'm better than that. I'm better than everyone, and that works as a motivation until I remember Smallville because the you know they they play with the relationship uh, between lex and his parents specifically his father lionel luther becomes a major player in that show to the point where i think thematically the show really becomes a story of sons and fathers that lex and clark start out on very similar paths and one becomes the world's greatest hero and the other the world's greatest villains because of who raised them, because of the men who raised them, Jonathan Kent and Lionel Luther. And, you know, maybe it was because of, of John Glover's performance in that role, which I adore. He's also hamming it up, to be fair, but I just, I, I adore him in that role. Um, and his, his interactions with Michael Rosenbaum, and it, it, it totally works. But the idea that his father was the ruthless businessman, who taught him that anything less than that is weakness and, and and that it will, and it will lead to, you know, Lex's failure. And he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing until Lex just breaks and becomes the Lex Luthor that, that we know. So because I love that version so much, the version we get here in the unauthorized, in unauthorized biography and and for all seasons only works until I remember Smallville.
0: Fair. And look, (laughs) I I don't think I'm going to shock anyone by saying that I gravitate (laughs) toward the Smallville version. I mean, that for me is it now for anyone who's wondering, like, why aren't you talking about Smallville more in this episode? That's the next episode. So look, the way that I sort of see this, and I'll talk about this more next week, but just to sort of lay this out as I was mapping out what these episodes would be. I had to draw a line somewhere. And there was something that started to happen in the mid 2000s that at the time, as I was reading, I didn't like really know I don't say I didn't know what was going on, but I didn't fully appreciate what was happening. And that was what I've come to recognize now as the the return the reinsertion of a number of pre-crisis elements into the character and for me this starts in the public enemies arc of superman batman where lex goes nuts and puts on the green war suit again i feel like from the moment he's in that green war suit through infinite crisis again we started to see a lot of these elements coming back he was now the outlaw they brought back lena luther his sister he was now more the mad scientist. And in fact, that had even started earlier, especially when Mark Wade yeah. did Birthright. He was now the businessman and the scientist. Right. But so I felt like there was this thing that was starting to happen. And maybe most importantly, for me at least, this idea of a, of a shared history in Smallville with Clark and Lex. And so even though, obviously, Smallville started... In the early two thousands, you know, before the other stories that I'm referencing, uh, and, and definitely dealt for sure with the businessman version of the character. I'm sort of putting that in the next batch of stories that we look at, so that's why. But, mm-hmm. but I I agree with you, and it, like that's the thing. The idea of these, you know, the poor alcoholic, abusive parents, you know, you know, it it gets you to a point. But I I do agree. I think it's far more effective what we get. In Smallville, and you're right, it totally becomes a story of of these, you know, the, the fathers and sons. What was one of the things that I thought of though, in in relation to what we looked at today, was they give Lionel essentially the origin story uh, that Lex gets in in these stories that we read. So in right. in the Smallville show, we find out that Lionel killed his parents for the insurance money. Uh, so that was interesting. To, again, so many connection points as as I was going through all of these things. Just as another example, I mentioned. And that indecent proposal story, the waitress, Jenny Hubbard, she comes back in the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly era during the Lex's campaign for president. She's the one who shoots him. And then we find out, you know, Lex was set it all up anyway. But yeah. uh, so, you know, it, it's so fascinating to see how these things tie back together. But just one more thing on Lionel. Again, that was it was so formative for me. The idea that Lex you know, was raised by this ruthless businessman. He came from money, right? He grew up in this yet, as I realize now, in looking at all of these stories, that's the exception. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, in those pre-crisis stories, we don't get much on his parents, but they they don't seem to be of means, right? And then they disown him when he turns to his criminal ways. Uh, And certainly in all of these stories, it's, again, it's the complete opposite of, of what we get on Smallville. So it's so funny, like, that's so formative to me, but I recognize that it's an outlier in terms of the family history
1: when it comes to Lex. It's an outlier and it's a clear reversal. Um, but what stays the same is Lex's rejection, at least at first, of who his parents are. Right in the comics, it's rejection of their mediocrity. In Smallville, it's rejection of the ruthless businessman persona that he really he tries so hard to avoid. It, which is one of the things that makes Lex really a tragic character on Smallville and and a sympathetic one, at least at least for most of the series, I think, um, in ways that don't always know that he is in in the comics um and to to address one of your other points you know there's a reason i think why in the mid 2000s those pre-crisis uh, elements started to come back you know we i think we we like to think that serialized superhero stories are linear that they just sort of keep going on this sort of infinite timeline forward but the reality is they're cyclical and you know as as readers grow up many of them leave the comics behind we get new readers not as many as I think we ought to have but okay we get new readers and and so creators editors I think are very careful to sort of bring back some things to recycle things both for nostalgic value for old fans and because new fans won't remember them anyway because they weren't reading at the time so it made sense that that was the point at which we started to return to older versions of Lex because what we're seeing here, the, the, the things that we're talking about, is all building toward President Lex, right? It's, it's businessman from John Byrne from 86 all the way to the turn of the century where, you know, how do you how do you make it bigger? How do you take businessman Lex who owns everything is at the top of the tower, has managed to chip away at Superman in every conceivable way. What's next for him? Politics, right? And and, and the highest office in the state. So, you know, once he becomes president, it puts Superman in the absolute worst position because Superman can no longer hover outside the window and look down at Lex. He has to stand on a, on a, on a national, international stage, shake his hand and congratulate him on, on winning the election, which is kills him, kills him. and killed me as a reader too. And that he, because, because at the time he still stood for truth, justice, and the American way. I know the motto has changed recently, but at the time it was still the American way. And part of that means you, it's not that you serve at the feet of the president, but you certainly can't openly defy the commander in chief. So put Superman in this really interesting position. But once that story runs its course, where else do you go but backwards? You kind of have to retread, you know?
0: That is an excellent point, and I think that will inform a lot of my my reading and viewing as I get ready for the next episode for sure. And you know, I guess to sort of amend my my answer from the beginning of the episode because I, I, I was thinking about this leading up to this. The animated series, I I still would say is number one when we talk about the evil businessman version. But the President Lex tenure really it was so formative for me. You know, we, we you and I have talked a lot about that Jeff Loeb Joe Kelly era, and that was that was a key part of my Superman reading history. And so there's, I have a lot of personal fondness for that era. And yeah, I do. I think you're right. I mean, I think all of the things that we're talking about, all of the themes and and plot points, like it all comes to a head in that. So the, the president Lex is, is really right up there with, with the animated version. I think when we're talking about this, Uh, let's take a quick commercial break and then uh, we will continue. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at FilmFreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies, The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. And we're back. Okay, so... I, I do want to come back later to the the arc across the triangle era, just in broad strokes. But let's get a little more specific on the on on the the issues and episodes that we looked at. As we're already you know, forty five minutes <laughs> into this, here uh, it's it's so fascinating. I I love you know talking about all of this with you. So same. I guess especially when we talk about Man of Steel and and World of Metropolis and, and even those couple of burned Superman issues, number two mm-hmm. and number nine and we can go you know wherever wherever you want to go as well but i guess generally speaking what characteristics what traits about lex really stand out to you as depicted in in those burn issues especially
1: that that what he's trying to do is get under people's skin to know that someone that, that someone is beholden to him or that he's holding something over someone. Um, I, so I had never read the World of Metropolis series. I'd read the, the Man of Steel and I'd read the, the early Burn stuff, um, but World of Metropolis was new to me. Um, And I knew because you and I had already read so much of the Triangle era, the whole idea that Luther had had sired a a son with Alice, Perry White's wife. And that was a a huge deal in Perry's relationship with his wife and and all that. But they but they worked it out. They reconciled. And and he no longer sort of had that power over him. But this is this is really where it starts. And I didn't I wasn't ready for that. And it was a it was a really nice surprise because I think it's a really interesting plot that, that Luther in this issue sells the daily planet. Um, and, and this is where we see him seduce and impregnate Alice and knowing what, knowing what would come from this years down the line, you know, his intention to me seemed I'm going to now forever have something over him, whether, whether he knew that, that it would produce a child or not. He now always had this, this thing in his pocket that if Perry White, whether in a personal capacity or professional capacity as, as editor-in-chief of Daily Planet, ever did something he didn't like or, or threatened him or, or whatever, he could pull this knowledge out of his pocket and use it against Perry. Oh,
0: Interesting. Okay. That is an interesting view on it. I mean... I- and I don't, I don't disagree. I'm just sort of processing that because I guess the way I looked at it, and this is what made me like Lex even less in these stories, is that I guess I didn't take it so much that he was doing it for, you know, for leverage or power in the future. It really seemed just so cruel. Like it just seemed cruel. And I guess maybe it could be both, you know, I suppose. And, you know, his ownership of the Daily Planet is is certainly interesting. And you know, I remember from reading the, the, the later triangle years when Lex buys the Delhi planet and shuts mm-hmm. it and opens his, little you know, Lexcom and, you know, Lois and Jimmy go to work for him there and that, that whole thing. And then they save the planet, uh, which actually doesn't happen until the start of the Jeff Loeb era when Lois makes her, her deal with Lex, uh, to sell the planet back to Perry for $1 in exchange for Lois killing one story of Lex's choosing in the future. So, yep. but in any event, yeah, in that world of Metropolis, yeah, you see, he used to own the planet, uh, yeah, I mean, what he did to Perry really just struck me more as, as cruel, and you see other instances of that in that story. So that's when I was asking, like, what what characteristics? I guess for me, it's like cruelty really seems to rule the day when it comes to this version of Lex. Going back to what I was saying before, though, about what we lose in the in the post-crisis version, you lose that history with Superboy. It was interesting that they, they now position Perry, Perry White, as the childhood friend, former best friend of Lex Luthor, and it's just interesting. I guess the idea—I guess they like the idea of Lex having a, a past with one of our characters. But now, in terms of what's been established and characters' ages and things like that, like Clark, that doesn't make sense anymore. And I've always felt Perry deserves more—more more play. So I kind of like that, and that is the version I grew up with. And there were later stories that did reference their—you know—their their history together. But yeah, you know, reading that story, it's like. We haven't seen anything, you know, there's nothing that's established in that story that points to a falling out or anything like that between the two of them. It's like, as far as we know, they're they're still friends, for, you know, and they, at least they have this history of friendship. And so for, for you know, Lex to let Alice think that Perry has, has perished, you know, reporting overseas, right? He's been gone for, I don't know, a year or two years. And, You know, he makes his move on her and then he yeah. throws it in Perry's face when they're all together. He has his assistant come out, and make a big show about oh we've Alice we found your jewelry in the master bedroom yeah. or whatever it is like it
1: just it just like twists the knife it's so messed up it is it's cruel on the face of it um but but I I also think it speaks to one of your earlier points that while yes they established that that Lex and Perry had been friends I. I don't see this Lex as being able to have genuine friendships and genuine relationships. Everything is a, a pawn on his chessboard to be used now to, to, perpetuate an act of cruelty because, because why the hell not, but also to hang on to for later, should he need it. And it turns out years later, he, he does he pulls that out. And it, and it, it, it is a stain on Perry and Alice's relationship for a while and the fact that the son that, that is produced has issues of his own that that cause trouble for them as a family and that Perry has to now weigh how he's going to deal with this trouble. He's 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 got substance abuse issues, right? And and mm-hmm. and, and ultimately he ends up dying in a battle that, that we didn't love the the blaze satanist more thing. But but okay but but the effect is there that that Perry has to wrestle with the child that he raised who you know many of his horrible qualities may just be due to his genetics that he's that he's Lex Luthor's biological son and so for me that's that's an interesting angle for Perry White who I agree with you really needs more screen time i think that it made more sense in this iteration to have Lex and Perry share the childhood relationship. Because if Clark is in fact that sort of perpetual 30 to 35 years old, the way that Lex is presented here, that, that does not work. Lex is clearly, it is 50s, right? He's, he's much more a contemporary of Perry White. So it works a lot better. Whereas you know on, on Smallville, for instance, Tom Welling and Michael Rosenbaum look as though they are contemporary.
0: So that works, and they'll play with that in the stories that we look at in the next episode. But yeah, you're right yeah. for purposes of this. No, I, I do think it it made sense, and like I said, it just was was striking to me that there was still this effort to to create a shared past between Lex and one of the you know one of the the, the core uh, you know cast members. Uh, you know, you bring up the the passing of of jerry white right the biological son of lex and alice raised by perry and alice and you know we talked about this when we did our crisis till death event last year but i I was reflecting on it when i was doing the preparation for this because i feel like it's one of the only instances in these stories in this version of lex where he shows any kind of humanity when he when he uh, uh, genuinely appears affected by the death of Jerry. But in all of these other stories, again, the the cuckolding of Perry White in World of Metropolis number 2, which I know I didn't assign, but mm-hmm. that's the lowest centric one. And basically she's like 15 and she's trying to get a job at the Daily Planet and she breaks into LexCorp and she's trying to get dirt on Lex and she's apprehended. And the you know one of his one of his uh you know uh, minions um basically like strip searches her. And Lex makes a remark later on about, you know, like, I, like, I look forward to meeting you again in 10 years, but in the meantime, I'll content myself by reviewing the tape of your strip search. Mm. And I'm paraphrasing slightly, but you know, it's like you, you read that and it's just like, oh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I'm going to make an office comparison to lighten the mood here. Okay. So <laughs> there's a, one of my favorite episodes of The Office, real quick, is Threat Level Midnight. We find out, you know, Michael Scott, he's been making this independent movie over all of the years. And then and season seven, we get to finally see what he's been making all of these years. And so he plays Michael Scar, and he's like a James Bond-esque Scarred, yeah. character. And Jim in The Office, our lovable everyman, he plays the golden face, the villain of the piece. And 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 he has a line in Michael's movie where he's like I'm going to dig up your wife's corpse and hump her. And everyone in the bullpen in the office as they're watching Michael's movie they all cringe they're like oh and then we cut to a talking head of Jim and he's like I didn't love the dialogue <laughs> but I was just trying to you know get some face time with the receptionist like right that's <laughs> but it's one of those things where it's like you watch this and and, and that's the thing where I and I guess this this leads to my one of my big questions for you as we approach one hour here. One of the big the big questions, because I feel like, like I said, I was struck by what I found to be a fair amount of humanity in the pre-Crisis Lex, especially on Lexor. He has a wife, he has a son, the planets destroyed. Like it really like it gets to you. And, you know, we get to Smallville, which again is a favorite of ours, and it's like, you feel for this guy. He's the nicest guy in town at the start of the show. Yeah. And he's lied to, he's deceived the whole show and he ends up the way he does, and it's like you feel for him. But there's this period in between where Lex is leering after an an underage girl. He's, you know, putting his supposed best friend through this torture. In Superman number two, you know, one of his his scientists there, Amanda, I mean, he, you know, we talk about, you know, me too. This is like me too and then some. I mean, he forces mm-hmm. her essentially, uh, you know, into into the sexual relationship with him. So all of these instances of this, and it's, Hard, it's hard to find any humanity in this version of the character. And, and, and you know, it's funny, I don't know if this is because of the way it was written or just because you don't have a, a performance the way you do on TV or, 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 you know, even in animation. But again, there, there's no charm or charisma to sort of counterbalance there. So you're really just left with ultimately a very cold and cruel person. And I guess my question is, is that okay? Like, I mean, his behavior is not okay. But I'm saying, like this depiction of of the villain, the villain of the story. It's like, does he need to
1: have humanity?
0: Because I'm sitting here, I'm like, he doesn't know humanity. Does he? Does he need to? I guess that's my question.
1: Does he need to? No, he doesn't need to. Um, I, I'm personally a fan of villains who are, in some way, relatable, whose whose mission, whose plight. Is understandable even if you don't agree with it, um, and and certainly their methods is sort of where where they lose you as an audience, right? You can understand what they do. So you know, for instance, you know, uh, uh, an Eric Killmonger in Black Panther, right? You understand why he wants to deliver Wakandan technology to African Americans so that they can you know rise up and, and and sort of reclaim a world that was taken from them. But the way he goes about it is completely heinous. Um, so it's not that you it's not that you need it, but it, I think it helps. Um, I think it's a I think it's always a more compelling story when the villain makes some good points, and the hero still has to take them down. Um, where it becomes as much a philosophical debate as it does a physical confrontation. At The end of the day, comics, animation—they're all visual media, so it's still going to have to be some punchy, punchy. But, um, but. I like when when it can be thinking. I agree with you I think this lex veers a little too far into the irredeemably cruel um it, it, it kind of finds its way back a little bit as as the years go on but but they really go pretty far I mean, and I, and I'll say John Byrne I mean, at this point he's the architect of, uh, of the era I mean John Byrne I think takes him to some places that are that are uncomfortable that are really uncomfortable. Um, You know, if he weren't a villain, it would be a bigger problem. But if he's the central antagonist, you know, he's a villain. You villain's going to villain. Right. Yeah. and, And
0: I agree. Like these definitely were the, the burn stories most of all, that really, really leaned into the morally reprehensible, irredeemable. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's like on the one hand, you know, this, was, I guess, really planting a flag in this version of the character, like this is who he's going to be. And, you know, so it, it is, it is what it is. But so, yeah, I mean, I guess, no, you're right. I mean, you know, going back to my question, it's like, no, it doesn't need to have, you know, the redeeming qualities. But yeah, for myself as a reader, as a viewer, you know, I think you definitely, I definitely want some of that. I I do think it makes it more interesting. And, you know, in the next episode, again, we'll we'll talk about a lot of stories where you do have this personal, uh, you know animosity and history between Superman and, and Lex, and in the final episode of this event, we'll look at we'll look at those stories that take a more philosophical approach to the differences between them. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I do find those more compelling. Again, there's a lot. I mean, I, overall, I like this the evil businessman version, but especially in these early burn stories that we're talking about, it's it's, it's real tough. I, I guess I, this idea of counterbalance, like there's just nothing to sort of. Even it out, and it gets a bit yeah. a bit bleak. I mean, you know, I feel like the the best slash worst example of this is is Superman number nine. This backup story <laughs> in Superman number nine, where you know Lex goes to this diner was it nine hundred miles outside Metropolis, and he makes this offer to the waitress Jenny to to spend a month with him for one million dollars. Now, I've never seen the movie "Indecent Proposal." I, I will admit, have you seen it?
1: I have and it, and it, and this issue of Superman predates that movie. Oh does it? I believe. Oh. oh yeah. I believe so. I believe so. Oh, interesting. Well, what was
0: funny was that uh, I did I at least watched the trailer for Indecent Proposal mm-hmm. and I think there is a million dollars for a night.
1: It's for a night, yeah. Yeah,
0: here is a million dollars for a month. Not as good a deal. I know it <laughs> I, mean, I know it a long time ago, but the you know, it wasn't that much of a of a, you know, difference in time. But
1: there are some similarities because what oh, you yeah. get is of, of a very rich man who specifically targets a hard-on-their-luck couple and makes this proposal. It would essentially solve their financial problems, right? So in one sense, it's very generous, but what he's asking in return goes beyond the night or the month because now it's, it's him going off afterwards with the knowledge that that happened. And it's something that 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 couple that they can never take it back. So while they might be enjoying their million dollars, they're always going to know where that money came from. It will be tainted. And that's that cruelty. It's, it, he's not I don't think he's into it because he has his sights set on a month of passionate lovemaking with this one waitress. It's it's the knowledge that he has insinuated himself into this relationship. And and essentially that relationship will deteriorate, and it will fall apart. And so, what's the million dollars worth at that point? And of course, she she ultimately turns it down, right? I mean, she's well. I think she, the, I think the kicker to that is that
0: he leaves before, like, she comes out to tell him tell him her decision or something something to yeah. that effect. And it's it's this idea. I think what he really gets off on in in that story is that, like, she'll never know if she would have gone through with it. That was the thing. Right. Right. And and yeah no definitely a ton of parallels. No, I was just when I brought up the the okay. difference in the amount, I was just like Lex's deal yeah. is a little little on the cheap side. You know, for well, there's obviously.
1: one there's one other key difference it's worth bringing up. In the movie, it's Robert Redford, right? Who has who has the charm of the Luther that we love from. I mean, he's got hair, but it, you know, he is ultimately that guy, right? Whereas in the comic here, it's schlubby. Tufts of red hair, Lex Luthor, who, you know No woman <laughs> in her right mind Would really want to sleep with him um, What what makes the movie work in ways that the, the comic didn't necessarily work Is, you know, you get a night with Robert Redford of <laughs> the deal as well, you know it's, So it's not like a total loss Um and I think that that works for the movie and as and a sort of, you know, for, for Jenny, it's, it's just the money, right? It's just the money, whatever else happens, it's just the money. Right.
0: But yeah, I mean, the fact that he's, you know, playing this game with her, you know, her dignity, her integrity and, and that, yeah, it's like, again, he, it's, it's really, he leaves before she even makes that decision. And it's like this, the, the idea of torturing her with like, yeah. would I have ever actually gone through yeah. with it? And I, again, you know, like the Perry White thing is one thing, and you know they have they have a history, and and you know, it, to your point, maybe it was an idea, you know, to maybe get some leverage down the line, like whatever, whatever it was. But this idea, and and it's it's made clear that he this is not the first time he's done this, right? Like this is a regular right. habit of his to just like randomly pick people to torture. That's where it was really hard to reconcile you know that version of Lex with I guess what I think of when I think of the character because I can't you know certainly the Smallville version I could never see doing that yep. and or the animated series version it's like but but even you know later triangle era it's like I I, I couldn't see doing that per se it was no. just it was so over the top and so again so cold and so needlessly cruel and you know I mean it it I don't know it's like it shows you who this character is so I'll give it that but yeah it was I, again, it was, it was really overall pretty off-putting.
1: Yeah. And I think where it, where it ultimately fails is in the, the wasted potential because the idea of businessman Lex Luthor um, allows for complexity and nuance in ways that I think mad scientist Luthor, for instance, does not. Um, Battlesuit Lex does not. Um, to, it, as a point of contrast, where we see, I think, that full potential realized, for instance, to bring it full circle to the very first time you and I ever recorded anything together, to the Batman No Man's Land story, where Lex is not a major player in it, but at the end, he sort of swoops in and offers his vast fortune to help rebuild Gotham City, but there, as always, there are strings attached, right? So this is, this is businessman Lex. Getting to use the wealth and the influence to ultimately whatever it is that comes out of it, he still does good with the money. He still he still helps to build Gotham City back up after this cataclysmic event now. That ultimately leads to the bid to, for the presidency and on and, and all the bad things that happen as a result. But that's that's my point about complexity and nuance, because at the end of the day, if you're a citizen of Gotham, having just been through hell, Lex Luthor is very much your savior. You know, he rebuilt your apartment building or he, you know, helped to finance the rebuilding of, of the store that you own or whatever you personally, whatever way you personally benefit from.
0: And I know we talked about this, uh, and that was a yeah. Patreon episode that we did years ago now. But yeah, yeah. No, Batman No Man's Land was my introduction to Batman comics, and it's yeah. it still holds a very special place for me. And yeah, me I too. love I love Lex's entrance into that storyline for all the reasons that you said. And and yeah, it's this, uh, you know, like in No Man's Land in particular, I don't know that the the No Man's Land designation would have ended had it not been for his intervention, right? right. So he is doing good. But he's also forging these land deeds, and by the end of it, you know his his aim is to own Gotham, like he owns right. Metropolis, and you know Batman's yeah. able to to put a stop for that. But to that, and, but the, yeah.
1: and the visual of him too arriving by helicopter, right? So he arrives from the sky yep. the way Superman does. The, right. the, the irony of that is not lost on on me, anyway,
0: <laughs> or I'm sure on Batman either.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> but yeah,
0: no, that's the, that's the thing overall with this version of the character that we get from you know '86 through 2003. And I know we continue to get shades of it, you know, in, in more recent stories. But uh, the fact that, like you said, it's not—it's not this physical confrontation. It's not Superman versus Lex in the armor. Mm-hmm. It's that Lex has fooled the public, and there's this public facade. And Superman, as much as he might thwart Lex's plots, is never able to pin anything on him, and two clear instances of that in the issues that we read Man of Steel uh, number 5 and uh, Superman Adventures number 27 both stories begin with Superman bringing the remains of a, a robotic adversary to Lex and being like I got you now like all of these parts came from you know came from Lexcorp like I you know this is you and Lex of course is ready to go and he's like no nope, you'll see that all of these parts were listed as stolen and that the suit was piloted by a recently fired employee with a grudge so, you know, he has all of his bases covered. And so that's the that, thing. That, by the
1: way, appears also in that Ruby Spears episode with the Defendroids. He's the same yes. plot device.
0: Nope. Yes. The thing, I mean, what's cool about the Ruby Spears is that, you know, that was the first on-screen depiction of the post-crisis Lex.
1: Uh,
0: so, you know, notable, you know, notable in, in that sense. What yeah. was Just as a quick side note, what, mm-hmm. what was your take on the, the, the vocal performance uh, of, of Lex in that series?
1: I mean, it's, it's eight, it's eighties cartoon. So, so full disclosure. So I have, I have this uncanny ear for uh, voice actors um, because I grew up on cartoons. So you hear the same voices over and over and over again. So uh, I, I, I'm blanking on his name, but, but the the voice was so familiar to me because he had played so many roles on cartoons growing up. So it was, it was totally familiar. I had watched that series as a kid. I haven't watched it since, um, but it all sort of, came back to me, which was nice, but it was interesting to see that the connection plot-wise between that one episode of that show, that only lasted one season of what, 13 episodes, something like that, mm-hmm. um, and the two separate issues that we see from two different Superman series decades apart, and yet they're going back to that same well of, I got you now, here are your robots, that I can trace easily back to you. Nope. Stolen parts. It's uh, so that idea of like, he always makes sure he has that back door of plausible deniability always.
0: Yeah, totally. And, and that's what makes this, this version of the dynamic so interesting, you know, Superman knows Lex knows, we know, but the public doesn't know and Superman can't prove it. Now, you know, I guess at a certain point when we talk about the, the, the ethical responsibility of Superman, and we talked about this. I talked about it with you and I talked about it with San Gregorio when we when we did our, our Loeb Kelly episodes at the very beginning of this podcast when we talked about the President Lex arc. But I think the same you know question can be asked even before President Lex, like when Lex is up to all of this and Superman knows it and he can't prove it. I'm not saying he should kill Lex, but. You know, at, at what point. Is it, you know, <laughs> is it imperative that that. Superman, you know, not, not worry so much about the letter of the law, but instead maybe put Lex in a special room in the fortress or throw him in the phantom zone. I, you know, again, I, and I, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it's like <clears throat> at a certain point, I feel like it kind of begs the question. It's like, OK, you can't you can't prove it the way you need to prove it in a court of law. But, you know, he's bringing about this harm. And are you not responsible for a greater harm by allowing this to happen? I'm not saying kill him. But do you take it upon yourself to imprison him, incapacitate him in some way?
1: So here's here's the other nuanced, complex part of Lex Luthor, the businessman that I love that sort of developed much later towards the presidency, right? So we're moving sort of out of the John Byrne era and through the triangle and, and all. That, is because they've built up LexCorp to be what LexCorp, Turned out to be, if Lex is taken off the chessboard, that's thousands of people out of work. That is a catastrophic decline in the stock market. It's it's projects that are are actively making Metropolis better that are now halted. So this isn't just a matter of removing one villain and stopping him from doing his villainous things. It, it, Luther has this, this grapple hold on the city. And, and, and I would say it probably extends beyond just the city and, and to, to the national or international level that makes it almost impossible to remove him, certainly without begging a lot of questions, um, but, but without sort of weakening the corporate infrastructure of the whole country in some ways.
0: Uh, your point is well taken and I think that's a valid explanation for that and sort of a, a, a more literal tangible counterpoint to that very early on in superman number two lex gets a hold of kryptonite and fashions it yeah. into a ring so now there's there's actually this physical impediment to superman taking that sort of action and you know lex will ultimately pay the price for that because he'll lose his hand and then later you know he would lose his life but for transplanting his brain into the yeah. the Body of his cloned quote unquote, son. Uh, but so you know, there. In fairness, there is that wrinkle to it too. But I, I think your answer, you know, definitely is the more interesting one and speaks to the the larger picture and all this. And not to not to mitigate what Lex is doing, but he's not like he's like slaughtering people. You know what I mean? It's you know, I, and I, again, I don't mean to minimize <laughs> the evil that Lex is doing, but I do like to think if it rose to a certain level, Superman would, <laughs> you know, would, would would take the necessary action. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Well, and that's and that's ultimately, I think, where my interpretation that went all the way back to his his dealings with with Alice, where that comes from, that idea of having everyone and everything in his pocket, um, because because by having a, 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 an outward facing uh, philanthropic persona, he covers himself. Should anyone actually discover anything about him or should Superman try to actively take him down? He's he's covering himself. He even covers himself in death. I mean, you know, this happens. He can't all his wealth can't stop it. And he has a plan in mind to keep his brain and put it in another body. So, you know, he's always those couple steps ahead. And, And to even bring it back to the first question you asked me, I think that's ultimately why he remains. Superman's number one antagonist for me because he is the brains to Superman's brawn. Not that Superman's not smart. He's very, smart, but he's not Lex Luthor level smarter, Bruce Wayne level smart and and so Lex is always you know in the same way that Batman is always one step ahead of the majority of his villains, Lex is always one step ahead of Superman.
0: Exactly. And so on the note of Lex the second two two things. One, I was thinking about how and now, I mean, now I can say this with some confidence. It's never been adapted. There have been nods to it. Like in the Reign of the Superman animated movie, when Lex goes out in disguise, he puts on a red wig. Right, right. And in Smallville, I mean, Lex ultimately saves himself in the later seasons through cloning. But he's not posing as his own son. Right. And I don't know. Just interesting to me that that's never been. It. I'm not saying it should. Maybe it's left best left alone. But it was just interesting to me that like all these stories, like they all get recycled and come back in some way. At least yet we haven't seen that come into play.
1: I don't know that we will or need to.
0: Well, you never know. So you know, there's someone who maybe grew up on that version of Lex. Maybe they have an You're opportunity right. to write something. Yeah, it might 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 find its way. <laughs> You're right. You're right. The, the other thing was. <clears throat> And I don't know, maybe the writers of the triangle era of the time, maybe they've addressed this in an interview or something like that. I don't know offhand, but I part of me wonders if they did the Lex the second to sort of, I don't know, absolve Superman to an extent. Because that's the thing with this. It's a great dynamic. Superman can't get the goods on Lex, can't prove it. So they always have this back and forth. But at a certain point... Does Superman not look, when we're talking about year after year after year, does Superman not start to look a bit ineffectual against this adversary? You know, in pre crisis, like Lex kept breaking out of prison, but like Superman caught him and he brought him back. It was more of a failing of the prison system that <laughs> he kept escaping. But right. here it's like at a certain point, what are you doing, buddy? And so that's why I wonder if there was this idea to sort of give it a restart, a refresh, because now, as far as everyone, including Superman knows, this is a different person who wants to do better than his father and is not the same guy so it sort of ge- it sort of like resets the clock i guess on on you know this the, the, the dynamic between them. I, I wonder to what extent that was that was kind of fueling it where it sort of gives superman a little bit of a break
1: yeah and and what i thought worked best about it was the fact that superman suspected from the beginning that this was every bit the Lex Luthor that his quote unquote father was. And so he is extremely distrustful, even as the city embraces him fully. Um, and and women are excited by him and, you know, he's this lustrous mane and this, you know, much more physically fit body. And, you know, so it, it allows, uh, it allows for a dynamic between Superman and Lex that we really hadn't seen before, which was for all intents and purposes for the good long while, his intention, Lex's intentions, were purely good. He really does present himself to both the characters in the book and to the readers as though this is not the Lex Luthor that we know. This is a good human being who's really trying to do the best he can for the city and its people. And to have Superman actively trying to now undermine him, a nice reversal of what the previous relationship had been, is a different version of the character that we'd seen now the fact that it ultimately unreverses itself and it it was all a ploy okay again comics is cyclical and you know it's always going to sort of we get a a new take and then it's going to revert back but I, i i don't know i it fails in some ways but in that regard i think it really succeeds
0: yeah, I, and look, it's it's hard for me to separate out because there's this fondness from my childhood, and I don't, I don't know where that ends, but I, I do think there's something kind of interesting about it. I think it also points to the the ultimate corruption and hubris of this character that like he, like that's the tra- I feel like one of the tragedies of Lex Luthor, and maybe the tragedy in this version where it's like he has a a, a fresh slate, like he has the opportunity to live again, yeah. and and to chart a different path for himself, but he just cannot help himself. So there, you know, there is maybe some element of, of tragedy there. How how well do you remember the like Lex's arc over those triangle years from Lex the second through the presidency?
1: I, I think I've got a pretty good or, grasp on it.
0: Okay, cool. I mean not that we need to, you know, spend a ton of time on it, but and I will yeah. be covering that. Uh we have an event coming up later this year on the podcast. You'll be a part of it. So we'll be talking yeah. about the next few years of the triangle errors. Last year we did Crisis Till Death. This year we're going to do uh, Death Till Wedding, and then next year we'll cover the Electric Era, uh, and then that brings us right up to the Loeb Kelly era that we started this podcast with. So we'll have yeah. covered the entirety of the Triangle Era on the show. But uh, yeah, it was just interesting, and I was kind of jumping around on the DC app and pulling up you know various issues that you know I remembered from you know from over the years. But essentially, that cloned body that Lex had created for himself uh, you know eventually uh, deteriorates, and yeah, Lex is at least temporarily brought to justice for his role in the, the destruction of Metropolis. He's finally able to beat the rap by basically claiming that all the actions were done by a, a deranged uh, rogue clone of his, not the actual Lex. Right. Um, but still you have this, this uh, you know, emaciated, deteriorating, cloned body. And then he is restored to full health in that Underworld Unleashed event where he makes a deal with, with Neron, the devil essentially, and trades his soul for uh, renewed health and vitality. And at that point, he comes back as, so this was like 1996-ish, I want to say, maybe a little bit later, yeah. but he comes back as the Lex uh, physically that we've been with ever since because, again, in those early Triangle years, like very schlubby. He's balding at the very beginning, schlubby guy. Then he's got the you know the Lex II physique, uh, the emaciated clone body, and then he comes back, I think, like the very fit version that we've been with. Um, ever since. He marries the Contessa and he fathers Lena Luther uh, And I actually read the issue, Superman number 131, where Lena is born. And I have a couple things that I wanted to mention about that. Uh, he sacrifices Lena to Brainiac 13 at the end of the Y2K storyline, at the beginning of the Jeff Loeb, Joe Kelly era. Uh, Superman returns Lena to Lex at the end of Our Worlds at War. Mm-hmm. And he says something to Lex in that scene that I thought was worth mentioning here. He says, we are small men in a large universe, Lex. And then he goes on to say, essentially, like, you have a second chance with your daughter. Um, as far as I know, she kind of, like, disappeared not long after that. I think she made, like, a couple of fleeting appearances and then presumably was erased in infinite crisis. I don't know. Uh, but that basically takes us right up until, you know, Lex becoming uh, president. So, like, that's sort of, I guess, a snapshot of his arc uh, you know, uh, across the across the triangle era, which really again was the height of of when I was reading Lex in the 90s.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of wild and dramatic in in ways that super superhero comics often are, right? I mean, it's you know they're they're the the everyday problems and conflicts that we have just hyperbolized to the nth degree. I mean, that's that's essentially what I mean. It's how I pitch it when I teach them as american mythology right it's 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 our world but just sort of heightens to as far as we can heighten it um so in that sense it makes sense but but in looking at the at that whole path um while individual bits of it are are exciting and there's some really great stories in there by some really talented creators you know it it also makes you wonder what might have happened had there been sort of one consistent creative vision over all of that to, to make sure that the that businessman Lex you know had consistently that that the nuance and the complexity. I'm gonna come back to those words that that he might have had, because by the time he becomes president, you know. Obviously, the readers are asking the same questions that a lot of the characters are asking who are in the know, which is how could this happen? I mean, how on earth could the nation elect this man who we all know is one of the the greatest supervillains ever? How could he be elected president? And I know I know this is not a political podcast, but I think the questions were answered not that long ago. Because, again, as you pointed out, Lex Luthor in the 80s is very much modeled on businessman Donald Trump. And even though Lex's presidency precedes Donald Trump's by a decade and a half, you know, Trump's rise to the presidency from the world of business is eerily parallel to Lex's. You know, this idea that Lex had, had sort of built himself up financially on the world stage and had done enough good and had his hand in enough things that enough people didn't see him as this ultimate villain. And so even when these moments came out where he was outed for having been involved in this or, you know, something public came to light, Lex was right when he says, look, even though a lot of people saw this with their own eyes, they're not going to believe it. Again, if you doubt the veracity of that statement. You just had to watch the presidential election of 2016 to see it play out. I mean, we had, you know, audio of a presidential candidate talking about, you know, groping women during the, the campaign. And that didn't put the nail in the coffin. of Biden. And in fact, he still won despite that. So, it, you know. I wonder if we had gotten a version of Lex that really kind of took advantage of that trajectory that would have been even more eerily prescient than it, than it already is.
0: That's okay. So when we talked about president Lex, I I think I talked about this with you and with Mike, when we did those episodes Yeah. and I know you guys were sort of on, on one side of this and I was on the other (laughs) where I feel like with the comic version of Lex, It was more, and I'll tread lightly here on the politics of it, but it was more understandable to me that the people of the DC universe would think he's this good guy. Because even though, again, he had been brought to trial, as far as people knew, it was a clone who had done all of it. Right. (laughs) So very over the top. But this idea that I I think the, the comic version of Lex had more or less over the course of those triangle years maintained that facade and even when it was shattered he was able to rebuild it in contrast to what we saw in the real world where there were these very specific extreme instances that were still not enough to sway people whereas in the comics it's like i could kind of i could kind of understand how the people of the dcu or would still reasonably think he's a good enough guy and that's where i felt like superman didn't do enough that's where i felt like and I, I i look i understand the tension that they were building here and and they wanted superman to ultimately feel betrayed by the choice that the people made I'm, all i'm saying is that for me i think the story would have landed more if superman had made that public stance and the people still chose lex mm. and because then it's i just feel like it's i don't know it just would have tracked a little bit better for me cuz like superman was like oh i'll take a back seat like they won't elect him but it's like they don't know what you know, and maybe I'm just overthinking this or taking it too literally. But I think that was the thing that kind of bugged me. It's like they don't know what you know if you tell them, and they still choose Lex. Then punching the moon like he does, or you know, <laughs> a, a moon, not our
1: right,
0: right. <laughs> you know, in, in anger, I feel like that would resonate a little bit. Again, I overall I still like the story a lot. I think it works. It's, it's not not the hill I'm going to die on, but I think that was sort of just the one one gripe that I had
1: with it. Well, at what point in that in that proposed story does Superman become more cynical than anybody's comfortable with? You know, the fact that he that he takes the backseat during the election in 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 a naive hope that America will make the right choice and then is disappointed when they don't, as opposed to interfering. And it would have been I mean, it would have been the, the, the. an interference with the democratic process to hold up this villain and say, look, here's what he's done that I know about that you don't know about. And because I'm Superman, you'll believe, me. you know, at that point, I think we lose, we lose an element of, of Superman that I don't know that we want to lose.
0: Interesting. So kind of on that note, I know I didn't assign any of this, but yeah, I was folding laundry the other night and I just like had a, I was skipping around Justice League and Justice League Unlimited episodes. And yeah. Jeremy, who did the Superman animated episodes with me, we're, next year we're going to do a whole thing on Justice League. So we're going to unpack right. Justice League a lot more, the way, same it. way we did the animated series of Superman. But I was skipping around to some Keylex episodes. And man, one of my favorites is The Clash.
1: Remind me. I don't remember it off the okay. top of my head.
0: So at this point, so what's, what's fascinating about Justice League and Unlimited is that you see Lex kind of run the gamut of all the versions that we've seen. So, yeah. you know, the, I think one of the first main times we see him is Injustice for All, and at the beginning of it, he's finally exposed for the villain he is, um, and he finds out he's dying from the you know the the kryptonite radiation and all that. And but he escapes and he puts on the purple the purple jumpsuit sort of thing, like you know, just like in, in, in yep. pre-crisis. But then later he reforms, and he announces a bid for the presidency and Captain Marvel, you know, sort of naively, innocently makes this comment to the press of like, hey, like, isn't it great that someone like Lex can have the opportunity to run for president and turn his life around? (laughs) And the Justice League, Superman in particular, like, they really take him to task for that. And Superman is like, listen, you do not speak on behalf of the League. Like, we do not take a stance on politics, which I guess runs counter to what I was saying. But it leads to a larger point. So Lex announces this, you know, this housing project for the poor and they build up, they build this entire development and it's empty. No one's moved in yet. And they have this this benefit. And long story short, now people who know the episode know what I'm talking about, but Superman is set up, right? Like Lex makes it seem like there's this bomb that's about to go off. And so Superman starts to, you know, try to get to the bomb and Captain Marvel intervenes. He's like, Stop, like, what are you doing? And they quickly come to blows, and their battle just demolishes this housing development. And and again, Superman gets played because they ultimately find the quote-unquote bomb, and it was really just this power source, and and Superman looks awful in the eyes of the public <laughs> through this. And, you know, he's absolved somewhat because, again, he was ultimately set up. This was during the Cadmus arc, so there was a lot going mm-hmm. on, right, to to discredit the Justice League in the eyes of the public. But the thing about it that I, I love, I loved then and I love now, is it shows the fallibility of, of Clark, of Superman. It's like... You know he he let he let his his anger get the better of him, and I'm not saying I want that to be his default setting, but right. when it happens, I, I like it, and it's like you can, I think in that in that animated arc and in the in the President Lex comic storyline, I think it's 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 very potent and it's very believable that he would get to that point. So that's what I'm. I guess this is a long winded way of saying it to your point. <laughs> it's like if he. <clears throat> I get what you're saying. It would kind of like lose something if he inserted himself in that way. But I also feel like if there were ever a place for it, like the stakes are so high uh, that I, I think it would track. But yeah, watching that episode, it's like Superman doesn't come off great in it. And the episode gives him an out, but I'm still like, no, like I get it. Like it just shows, I don't know. It shows the humanity of him that he would be that
1: pissed off. Yeah. No, I see, I see a version where it works that Lex Luthor is so manipulative. Um, that Superman loses. He loses his cool. He makes a mistake. He, he does something uncharacteristic or he just allows himself to get so emotional about it because, again, he knows that he's being played and there's nothing he can do about it because Lex is ultimately the superior mind. And, and you know, Superman not only having the moment, which is interesting and exciting in and of itself, but then his reflection on that moment, you know, where he he'd get real down on himself for allowing himself to lose his cool in that way. And and I don't know that we saw enough, maybe not enough of that. Again, I don't know that, I don't know that I want to see it go so far as him interfering with that democratic process, but I do see moments where it might've been really effective to have him bested in a way, not physically, but mentally bested by Lex Luthor. And, you know, I, and I think, I think the first time that, that the stories that we read sort of drop that ball are right from Superman two, Superman number two, the issue um, where, um, you know, one of his employees runs this algorithm based on all this information that spits out the inevitable conclusion that Clark Kent is Superman as the cover to cries. And what should have been a moment of, Lex Luthor finally realizing that he has the leverage that he's always wanted on Superman. His arrogance does not allow him to accept that as true. Now, part of that is, you know, the, the, the brilliance of the Clark Kent Superman dynamic that Clark has done such a good job of presenting himself as, you know, someone who could never, ever, ever be mistaken for Superman. But on the other hand, for as smart as Lex is, Don't necessarily buy that 100%. He dismisses it on its face. I I, I mean, goes so far as several years later as to have this woman murdered, (laughs) which we talked about in one of the Triangle Era episodes because she she continuously tries to prove that this is in fact true and Lex won't have it. So, you know, that could have been, I think, an opportunity to start playing that out as well where if he's got it over superman then we could see this deterioration of superman's confidence in himself and in this relationship with lads
0: oh I, there, all right a couple of things but for, do you want to take a break or do you want to just power through you tell me Either i'm fine. good all i'm right, good good
1: man yeah audience i'm having
0: fun audience i hope you're with us i, I i'm enjoying this so much okay yeah so with Superman number 2 yes and, and Lex's refusal to accept the results of this computer program so he says no man with the power of superman would ever pretend to be a mere human yeah and i, I you know and it's it's like the last couple of panels of the pay, of the issue it's real quick i wish that yeah. had gotten more play also in that issue the one thing the one main thing that we haven't mentioned yet Lex has Lana brutally tortured for information on this he also has agents go to the kent farm and knock out the kents with with darts but they're okay uh but kidnaps lana and tries to get information out of her i mean it's when when clark finds her in the broom closet of his building it's rough it's really oh, yeah. really rough in the president lex uh special that came out which i think you and i both have in in one of those the older uh president lex trade paperbacks
1: no, I, I got the new one. Oh, you have too. the new one. Good man. All right. I, with the one that has the oh, <laughs> heart of the deal cover on it.
0: Very nice. I couldn't
1: resist. I couldn't resist. But
0: there's like a two-page short story in that issue where Lex visits baby Clark, Lana, and Pete's child at the, the nursery, yeah. and, and he's having this whispered conversation with Lana about, like, how could you go along with Pete Ross being Lex's VP? And, and he references her torture. It was a good callback.
1: Absolutely.
0: A great callback. You know, how, how could you... You know, how could you go along with this knowing what what Lex did? And she has this whole thing about like, you know, we we can't prove it. We never knew for sure. We can't prove it. And hey, this is an opportunity for Pete. And uh, after Superman leaves, she has this line to Baby Clark where she's like, maybe something will happen to Lex, to the bad man, uh, and then Daddy can be president. So you know, Lana had her own stuff going on, <laughs> yep. but uh, you know, there's there's that piece of all of this. Well, again, when we talk about just the, the the inhumanity and the coldness and the cruelness of all of this, uh, the torturing of Lana. The cuckolding of Perry White, the indecent proposal of this waitress, like many, many instances of this. Anyway, um, but yeah, with with Lex refusing to accept the results, it's like, again, this idea of it just not computing. The idea that someone would have this power, not use it for personal gain, not allow himself to be bought or controlled (coughs) would... You know, we would position him, you know, we would position himself in this like lower position, you know, in, in society, like just none of it tracks
1: yeah. for yeah. him, which if you think about it is actually a really nice pre-crisis callback to the annual for the man who has everything. Because when Mongol imagines what Superman's ultimate fantasy world would be when he's under the the influence of the Black Mercy, all Mongol can imagine is Superman like basically sitting on a throne of skulls, having conquered the entire universe. Because any man with that that, that much power, that's that's all they could possibly want, right? That that has to be Superman's ultimate goal, and and Mongol only thinks that way because that would be his ultimate goal of what he would do with that power. And of course we, we learn from, from the issue that he Clark just, he just wants a, a life with a wife and a kid and a dog. And you know, that, that idyllic American life. And, and, and here I think Lex to some extent is, is thinking of Superman in the same way because Lex is, is projecting onto Superman what he would do if he had that power. Rather than thinking about who Superman actually is, he won't accept that someone is genuinely that good. So I actually like that, that for that connection. But I think that if you really look at everything Lex has done in all of these issues and all of these episodes, this idea of I'm going to use kryptonite or I'm going to, I'm going to position Metallo as superior man or I'm going to create a bizarro. Cause in this, he actually has Bizarro created. It doesn't come from a, another world. Um, I'm going to use these robots. I'm going to do all of these things to discredit and undermine Superman. For essentially, the, the and even to, to your point about, you know, kidnapping and beating Lana, because he knew it would lure Superman. He knows that there's some connection between the two of them. It would absolutely lure Superman and, and, and he could learn who Superman is. And then he gets it. He all of his machinations work. He succeeds. He wins. And the arrogance that he just throws it out the window because it's it, I, it, there doesn't even really seem to be that much compelling evidence, other than no, any man with that much power. You know, I, I, I that's what I wrestle with because you you have it. You did it. And you rejected it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. On the one hand, there's something very poetic about it, but on the other hand, yeah, it is like it does sort of undermine the the characters, you know, intelligence and and ability to reason that it's like he that he's so quick to dismiss it. And also, not I mean not to nitpick this, but it's like if you think that Superman has some sort of disguise, who do you think he would be? Like, do you, like, like, that's the thing. Like, oh, he wouldn't just... Well, but that's the thing. is like to be a mere human. So it's like, I don't know what Lex was expecting to find. So I, I don't know. Like that, that, That's a little bit hard to answer. But, and I don't know if this was exactly what you were getting at, but when you were saying mm-hmm. that it'd be interesting, you know, for Lex to have something over him. Look, I've been advocating this on this podcast for two years now, only multiple episodes. Most people disagree with me, but there are, I'll say this now on this episode, there are two scenes in everything that we've read that, oh, actually, you know what, maybe three. I might have to throw Batman v Superman in there. Yeah, all right, three. (laughs) Three scenes that, for me, represent the ideal Superman-Lex dynamic, and I wish we could see stories run with this for a while, and it's the dynamic where Lex knows Clark is Superman. And in comics... This was not a sign. And I cover this at the end of last year when, when Mike and I looked at the rest of the Joe Kelly era of action comics. But there was that ending battle storyline yep. where someone knows Clark is Superman and, and all of these villains are attacking like everyone in his life, like his accountant and his dentist, like it's over the top. But that's the gist of it. And Superman confronts Lex. On his, you know, private—he's president at this point. He's got this secret, his own fortress that no one on earth knows about. But Superman finds him. Oh, it was such a great bit. Lex is like, literally, no one knows about this. He's like, how did you find me? And then he takes a beat and he goes, "You memorized my heartbeat, didn't you?" And that was how Superman yeah. found him. Yeah,
1: I remember that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but you know, Superman is still kind of mm-hmm. dancing around it, and he's, you know, like asking Lex some questions, and he's like. Uh, why don't you just come out and ask me? And Superman goes, like, do you know who I am? He's like, yes, Clark, I know. And yes. they have, like, a very measured, reasoned discussion. And Lex is ultimately like, the reason I'm not going to use this against you is because of her, because of Lois. And it was a perfectly valid explanation for it. It's like, okay, this is why Lex wouldn't blow up Superman's world. I don't know, that might undermine our argument about he doesn't know how to love. He seems to, if there were no genuine, if there were no true feeling... <laughs> Uh, you know, maybe, maybe he, he would go after, I don't know. That's debatable, but, yeah, but it, it's like a few pages of, and by the end of the storyline, Manchester Black, who is responsible for Lex figuring out that Clark is Superman removes that information from Lex's head. Right, right, right. So it's so short lived. Similarly yeah. in the series finale of Smallville, one of, my, one of my favorite moments from the entire series is when Clark and Lex have the showdown. And then later on in that episode, all of Lex's memories are erased. <laughs> and then in Batman v Superman yeah. when of course Lex has figured out that Clark is Superman of that rooftop confrontation yeah. that to me and I might be in the minority on this I don't care that to me represents I think the most interesting dynamic because this whole idea of like oh Lex can't figure it out or he rejects the results when he gets them or whatever it's like okay but the idea that they can they can have this going back to this, this intimacy right like Lex lets his guard down around superman the idea that superman could like well, it has to do the same because lex knows and whether it's because it's power over superman or he loves low or whatever whatever reason you want to attribute it to or in the context of smallville they there's some bedrock of friendship that's still there they might hate each other now but it's like you were my best friend once like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna use your identity against you i think it could work and those are three instances the first two in particular batman v superman i'll kind of circle back to but those
1: first two that to me is like, those are my favorite scenes. Uh, I agree. I think, I think used well and, you know, in in a well told story, I think it could could be really, really interesting and would, and would be such a great status quo shift for the Superman comics. I think that we're sort of in a place now where it can't happen because in the recently concluded Bendis era, Superman reveals his identity to the entire (laughs) world. So, you know, no, Lex knowing the identity really doesn't mean
0: anything anymore. Wait, I'm sorry. You know, there's you're a parent, so you'll probably appreciate this. You know, the song, we don't talk about Bruno from Incombo. Oh,
1: do I know that song? We don't talk about
0: Bendis.
1: (laughs) No, I look, there were, there were, I I know this, this is not what we were meant to talk about, but since you already recorded those episodes and I already listened to them, I'll I'll, I'll briefly weigh in. You know, I, I checked it out because I've been a fan of Michael, Brian Michael Bendis for a long time. And while ultimately I agreed with you that I did not love uh, this particular era, I I liked the Superman book a a lot more than I liked the Action Comics book. Um, And a lot of that had to do with Ivan Bryce's art because he's just so brilliant. I love him. Um, But there were a couple of very interesting ideas that Bendis had, one of which being the reveal of of Clark Kent as Superman. And I even sort of bought into the reasoning behind it, you know, him getting to a point after a long career as, as the premier superhero in the DC universe saying, look, I have stated over and over and over again that I stand for truth. It's the first word in his motto, right? Truth before justice and everything else. How can I reasonably... Serve these people in the name of truth. If I am ultimately always lying to them, and so I, I, I get it. I, I, I agree with you though that I think I think it may have been a wasted opportunity to start at least with Lex knowing the secret. I think if you've got Lex, who however he figures it out, figures it out. Let's Clark know that he knows doesn't do anything with it right away because it's much more delicious to let Superman wonder when it's going to come. It's like the slap on how I met your mother. Right? <laughs> right. It's much better to not use the slaps and let Barney wonder when the next one's coming. It's like, let Superman live in a little bit of fear. Lex has the upper hand and, and to Lex, that's everything. Whether he uses it or not is irrelevant, knowing that he's got something that he can use. Let that play out for a little while. And then the way you thwart that is reveal your identity to the world. So now that weapon that you have means nothing.
0: I like that. I still, I would still not be on board with the full unmasking, but (laughs) so to speak. But I I think uh, that definitely would have been more compelling. I mean, I guess the way I look at it is we've seen this, this, tangible instance of Lex holding Superman at bay with a kryptonite ring. So this would just be a, another version of that or a replacement for that. I guess that's kind of the way I would look at it. And kind of going back to what you were saying before, it's like, well, you know, what is the, uh, you know, uh, objective here? If it's not necessarily to kill him, but it's to outmaneuver him or to undermine yeah. him, it's like you, you can use that. So I don't know. I, yeah, I think that, yeah, If again, those, those scenes that I had mentioned, I wish they had had more of an opportunity to play out. Like I wish that Lex didn't find out Clark's secret in Smallville, like at the very end. Yeah. Um, I wish that, you know, that scene that we got in ending battle in the comics. And I wish that <laughs> so short lived because uh, these yeah. memories erase so, so shortly thereafter. So
1: yeah.
0: like, I just wish these things had, had been able to play out, even if it's not, I can live with it not being the status quo forever, but I do think there's a missed opportunity. I think your the example that you cited is, is a great, um, is, is a great instance of that. So, you know, I mentioned in that in that story, uh, ending battle. You know, Lex referencing his his love of Lois. And when we talk about Smallville next. We to talk about his the uh, you know the being a romantic rival for the, you know, Lana's affections. But you know, certainly in in these stories, um, and in the Man of Steel number four, like the first time we meet Lex, uh, you know, Lois and Clark are going to this event that he's hosting on on his boat, and he sent this very expensive dress for Lois. And he, you know he's it's very clear that he has designs on her. But Lena you know, Lois quickly rebuffs that and she, you know, senses what we see as readers that he's looking to to possess her the same way he does everything else. Um I guess when it comes to Lex and Lois and this is pretty present in my mind having just rewatched the first season of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which culminates in an almost wedding between Lex and Lois. <laughs> I
1: do remember that.
0: I mean, yeah. to what extent if any do you like Lex or do you see Lex as a viable romantic option? In in the animated series as well, in in the the concluding chapter of that um series premiere, uh you know, Lois makes a remark to Clark about how she dumped him. So like you don't know the full extent of what what if any relationship they have, but there's some sort of history there. So we get like a number of instances of this across media. To what extent if any do you like him as a romantic interest for Lois? <sighs>
1: I I don't think I could ever really buy it because I I think right on the face of it, Lois is just, just better. And and she's smart enough to see right through him. Um, If he's interested in her again, I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, because I absolutely agree with it. I don't think he's capable of having any genuine affection for her. It would be more a relationship based on, What she can do for him I mean having the premier reporter At the Daily Planet In his pocket as his paramour Would certainly Be beneficial to him In a professional capacity Um, Insofar as Lex's relationship with Clark Not Superman but Clark Develops it would certainly benefit Him knowing that You know I got her and you didn't Um and then later, when it's clear that Superman and Lois are an item, I think Lex would love to just you know be able to either have her first or steal her away. I just don't see Lois, at least the Lois we know today, I don't see her as, as giving that a second thought.
0: And I think that was one of the things rewatching season one of Lois and Clark that was kind of tough. I mean, it was, Mm -hmm. there were a couple of things there. Neither my wife nor I really bought the, the chemistry between the two of them as much as again, John Shays Lex was, you know, far more charismatic than what we were getting in the comics, but it's still just, that was a little, it was a little tough to buy. And I didn't think Lois came off great in that first season. It really felt like, you know, she was, she was settling for Lex and and not to defend Lex, but it's like, you know, it's not a good look for, you know, for, for any of them. It's like, clearly she had, you know, interest in Superman, potentially Clark, uh, at that point. So, you know, that was, that was a little tough.
1: Yeah. And one of my issues in general with the show was that because they were playing up the romantic comedy element of it, rather than, you know, as a straight superhero show or drama like Smallville, um, Lois does not come off as as smart as capable as driven as I I imagine Lois to be because at the end of the day she is she's the romantic interest who has romantic interests of her own and so when she's when she's always sort of being relegated to a player in a romance I don't you know Lois is so fiercely independent, and so again, once you put her in that genre, sh- the goal is to make her not independent. The goal is to partner her up, whether it's the ruse of Lex Luthor or the ultimate marriage to to Clark. I I, I just I don't know. I I, I never. That, it's one of the reasons why I never really loved the show. I watched it at the time; it was fine. But even re-watching it now, like, I just I couldn't get into that version of of Lex, as lovely as I think Terry Hatcher is. I, I just didn't. I don't know. I just need, I needed Lois to be a little stronger.
0: I that that's fair. I I, I do get what you're saying. I, I will say that with the idea of of Lex as a romantic a viable romantic interest for Lois. I, I think that, and this was something that my wife and I were talking about in those in those episodes we did where it's like, how much do we buy that it's genuine versus him just wanting to, to, to control her, to have, have influence over what she can write in The Daily Planet, you know? Yeah. And I think that, and I don't know, I guess it's a fine line to walk, but I, I think if there's a way for... First of all, I'm not clamoring for Lex Lois romance stories, to be honest, I, I but I guess if it's going to happen in, in iterations, I think that yeah. if it can be genuine for as much... I, I guess that's the thing. It's like if that's the one thing he's capable of feeling in a real way, then I can buy it a little bit more. But it's one of those things like if she can't see who he really is as this evil businessman, and she can't see that he's just trying to possess her. Then like her character really suffers. So yeah. if there's something real, yeah. then I think maybe I, I could be a little bit more open to it. But I don't know, I can't say I've seen any story yet where I'm like, oh, okay, I could kind of see yeah. why this is happening.
1: <laughs> I think if if it's going to work, I feel like it's gonna be in a story where you have to take the chronology back down to ohm of zero, where you know, Lex is essentially an unknown quantity, not good, not bad, just new. And if he is charming enough and powerful enough and philanthropic enough, he might get the eye of a Lois Lane, right? She's, Influential and powerful in her own way He is, maybe they do sort of Work if there isn't a Clark Kent In the picture yet, if there isn't necessarily A Superman in the picture yet, to to that Extent, and you take it all the way Back and build the relationship up from Nothing, I could see it working For a period But obviously it would have To come to a head at a certain point where She realizes it, because you Can't do to her in that relationship What was done to her in her Clark Kent relationship for decades which is where this pulitzer prize winning reporter can't see that the two guys that she spends the most time with are the same guy she just comes off looking stupid
0: you know i know that is a very tough tough pill to swallow uh so one one more thing i just want to say about lois and clark i i I also i haven't done my full season two rewatch yet but i did watch one lex's one episode from season two phoenix where he rises from the dead what was interesting about that, spoiler, sorry people, but what was interesting about that one was it, it definitely hearkened more to the pre-crisis versions, like the mad science of his return. It's not at his own hand of he's dead, but his doctor, Gretchen Kelly, right? So they bring her in from the, from the mm-hmm. comics and his assistant, Nigel. Uh, they put him in this like, chamber and he and he rises, but he loses his hair. So we, we finally have the baldness. He doesn't seem too affected by it. In fact, he's like sh- he starts the hair starts to fall out. He's like, shave it. Uh, so he doesn't have the reaction that the pre-crisis likes. Yeah. But, you know, he finally is in that bald look that we had been deprived of in the entire first season. He's brought back by this this mad science. And then I think the I was very tickled by the the disguises. Uh, that he wears throughout the episode. Like he puts on a janitor's outfit and like this huge handlebar mustache. and He's like walking around the Daily Planet. And he also disguises himself as an old man in a wheelchair and he's having these interactions with Lois. He sounds like a big thing in the pre-crisis stories uh, where he would always have these disguises and his name would be an anagram of 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 Luther. Right. Uh, so it's interesting to see that. It was, felt like a lot of the versions of of Lex kind of came to a head in that one. So if anyone's looking for like a like a cool... Uh, Lex episode from Lois and Clark. I would recommend that one from mm-hmm. uh, from from season two. Uh, not to rush through things, but as we're hit, almost mm-hmm. about to hit the two hour mark, <laughs> a couple of other we've hit on almost everything that I had on my list, and and anything that's left that you want to get to, of course, I, I want to talk about. But one of the things, because I you know this becomes a, a bigger issue, I think in stories that I'm going to talk about next time. But there's not as much xenophobia in this version of Lex that there is, I think, in the next batch of stories that I'm going to be looking at. And that was actually one of the interesting things about this entire period in in Superman comics, like his alien heritage, it's not, it's not dismissed. They, they do deal with it. Um, You know, what's interesting in, in Man of Steel, right? He doesn't find out that he's an alien from Krypton until the end of the story. He's like a few years into his tenure at this point, right? And when Metallo attacks, he's been created by the scientist who has, you know, tracked Superman's ship. And, you know, Metallo's alluding to the alien origin. And Lois is like, are you an alien? And at this point, he's learned. He's like, yes, I, I am. Like, does that change anything? And she's like, no, I don't think so. And you kind of see that play out even in the animated series. Like, he tells her he's from crypt. Like, it's not, it's, it's not as much of a sticking point as it becomes in later stories. And even from Lex, like, as much as he acknowledges uh, that you know he's not human; he's an alien. It's not, it's not said with the same hate that I think you see in the later stories. Did you find that too?
1: Yeah, I mean, the one instance I even have in my notes that that alien even became an issue was in the For All Seasons issue where uh, Lex blames an alien for some new virus, right? right? Um, I I've always liked. The version of Lex And again we didn't really see it too much In the stuff that we prepared for this But I've always liked that version Of One of the sticking points For his resentment of Superman Is that if anyone's Going to be the savior of the city or the world It should be a human being One of the people who actually inhabit this world One of the people who belong here And the fact that it is an alien Just rankles him um, you know, and, and 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 not just an alien, but an alien who pretends to be one of us, who has a secret identity where, you know, he blends in and, and is lying to those around them, you know, convincing them that he is in fact human, as opposed to, let's say, a Martian man hunter who there's no pretense there. He's this green, shape-shifting alien. And, and as troubling as that might be for Lex, at least he's honest about who he is. Superman is not. Um, and, and I think that, I think there's there's interesting things that have been done with that. I think there are more interesting things that probably could be done with that. Again, I hate to get political, but I think that in the recent discussions about illegal aliens and immigration that we've been having over the last couple of years, a lot of the same sentiments have popped up—not of you know aliens from space, but aliens from other countries—and um, and the same sort of vitriol that has been leveled against. Them, you know, coming to the country illegally, stealing jobs, or whatever has been sort of leveled against them. I, I, I think there's there's a relevance, um, a timeliness to a story like that involving some aliens in the DC universe. Uh, whether it's you know Hawkman, Martian Manhunter, Superman, I think there is a way to do that and have it and have it play really well. So I do I do like that that trick if, if they can pull it off.
0: I do too. I mean, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to do these episodes was to look at the the ways in which the motivations have changed. And like I said, pre-crisis, you know, you had this grudge. He blamed Super Superboy for the baldness. Uh, again, in the next in the next batch of stories that I look at next week, I, we think we'll get into that into that xenophobia, um, which I, I is is especially resonant uh, relevant today. Uh, And in the final episode that we do, it's going to be a a look at the more philosophical objections that Lex has to Superman, the idea of what would it, what effect would it have if the people in this fictional DC universe, right, but look to Superman to solve all of their problems. Does that, does that hinder human advancement? And so, uh, you know, again, it's, it's very different than what we're talking about in this episode, this, you know, where... You know, <laughs> there. And I don't mean to be, you know, to to reduce it, and, you know, and 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 uh, you know, poke fun at it. But this idea of like, he's the highest one in the city until Superman shows up, and you know, and, and that seems to be the root of it. Like, I, I do think there are other iterations. You know, we do have a more compelling reason for the differences between them. But uh, again, this evil businessman version, I, I think there is a lot of really great
1: stuff that that comes from it. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, we're really looking at about fifteen years. Worth of, of story And so, yeah, you're right To reduce it to to one thing Would be obviously silly and reductive But but um, We watch over these 15 years This evolution of the character First of all the, the, the immediate evolution from Pre-crisis to post-crisis And then this slow build From, you know, schlubby Evil businessman to More charming uh, President And I think I think we do get some nuance. I think we do get some complexity. It's not consistent. Again, you know, when you have that many, that many titles being produced that frequently by this many creators, I just don't think it's possible. Even the editorial uh, staff, you know, changed over over that period. So, you know, I, I just don't. Th- I think we, you know, part of it is we may be asking too much because we're looking at all of it in hindsight. Um, as opposed to you know on the ground producing these books you know month to month and and you know in that in that triangle era really from burn on like we're talking about weekly comics Superman book every week of the month so you know it's it's hard to get that sort of consistency but it would be nice and it, I don't I don't think it's a worthless experience to sort of hope for it or or you know want the books to be as good as they can possibly be and. And maybe now where we have the rise of, of sort of more comic book auteurs who really kind of take on the book and own it for better or for worse, um, you know, maybe we do get a consistent vision over the course of several years that nailed down a version of of Lex that, that we just love and, and becomes our our new Lex. Yeah, for sure. And,
0: and, and I will say, you know, overall, again, I, I really enjoyed these stories and I... I do like this version of Lex. I, would I say this is my definitive version? No, but I really do like Alex, who you know has something on Superman. Whether it's that Superman can't prove Lex's misdeeds, or he has his kryptonite ring that's keeping him at bay. Uh, again, the scene that we we keep talking about of of Lex hovering outside the window, like this 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 dynamic between them. I think is it really is interesting and challenges Superman in a different way than we had seen in all of those pre-crisis stories. Uh the main thing that was missing for me uh was 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 humanity was something to sort of root for to allow me to see from Lex's perspective. Um again I think he just like I said came off, you know, more more cruel than anything else in a lot of these instances. Um, but some with, you know, with, I guess with some excep- exceptions and I, just as, as we wind down just to talk about the, his family a little bit, uh, I, I did think one of the, uh, you know, really interesting moments in Superman for all seasons. Number three was when Lex was recounting in his inner monologue, uh, a, a moment from his youth when his father hit him and the father said, this is going to hurt me more than it's, it's going to hurt you. And Lex refused to 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 cry or to plead. He just stared his father in the eye the entire time. And Lex says, at the end of it, I think it did hurt him more than it hurt me. And it taught me, I said, I learned from my father to always give people what they want, but always for a price. So this idea of a price, like he feels like everyone has a price, mm-hmm. but also it's like he's going to take. Anything he gives, he's going to take. And in that very issue, right, he creates this virus that knocks out all of Metropolis. He makes Superman think it's because he's an alien. And that really, you know and all these stories that we're talking about the, the for all seasons when well, that might be the main one uh, where like Lex quote unquote wins at the end of it. We still have part four and Superman will come back. But at the end <clears> of part three, like Superman's confidence is really shaken. He doesn't know if he's responsible for this virus. And even beyond that, you know, Lex creates this, you know, this uh, poison character, right. right. Um, who has the cure for, it, but she dies in the process and it's all orchestrated by Lex. And, you know, Superman feels responsible for this, this life he lost. And, again it really it really rattles him so you know lex has the upper hand at the at the end of that episode issue and you know superman goes back to smallville and he doesn't know if he's going back
1: well cuz if there's one thing we've learned from all of this when it comes to that idea of a price luther will always take more than he gives right he'll always come out the victor in that in that exchange and will never allow himself to be taken advantage of in any way so he's always going to get the better of the better end of that deal, and 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 maybe that's the defining characteristic, right? That that in every relationship, in every business dealing, in, in any everything that he does, he will ensure that he ends up on top. That he ends up with more than the other person.
0: Well, maybe the, the the last main thing that I want to say to kind of build off of that off of that and also what what we've been saying about his inability to love, I I really have a very hard time with Lex's sacrificing baby Lena at the Mm -hmm. end of Y2K to Brainiac 13 in exchange for control over this futuristic technology that will allow him to now rule Metropolis in a whole new way, right? And I don't know. I mean, it's like, and maybe this is now as a father, it it hits me even even, even more (laughs) so, but... You know, we talk about all these instances of, of the cruelty, but, you know, he, he sacrifices his daughter. And, and, you know, he says something to Superman. I didn't reread this specifically for this, but he says something to Superman at the end of it, like, "Uh, you know, I, I paid a price, like, more than you'll know. And so it it's, you know, it's it's not like it's totally lost on him, but at the same time, that's, that's the life of your child. I, I, again, just a f- number of these instances where it's just, I don't know, I guess maybe I would have hoped that fatherhood would have, like like we were talking about with him and, and Lois in this hypothetical scenario, mm-hmm. like the one the one real thing in his heart, you know, that that would allow us to empathize with him a little bit. I mean, I don't know what what is your what is your take on the the sacrificing of Lena?
1: Well, I, look, it, you and I as as fathers, I I, I think could never relate.
0: Oh, and to, I'm not saying yeah. I'm,
1: yeah, <laughs> no, no, fairness. No. I'm <laughs> not. <laughs> Scott, what like, do you think? Do you think that was the right call? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's why I had four children, because one day if I have to sacrifice one of them, I still have three. No, it's it, it's it's the, the most horrendous acts that you can imagine somebody committing, and, and, and it it is villainous and, and and all of that. But if you take the emotion out of it, which I think we've been saying since the beginning of, of our talk tonight, that, that he, you know, if he really is incapable of, of having genuine affection for anybody, even his own blood, um, what he gains from that exchange is objectively Again, taking all it's not my personal view, but objectively what he gains is so much more than what he'd get from having a child, which is very small. You know, it's, it's, it is a, a it's this very contained experience of raising a child as opposed to, I now have control literal control over the entire city of metropolis, which has been what I've been trying to do for my entire adult life. I, I That I see. And, and, you know, not,
0: not to be ghoulish about this, but you know, yeah. we, we know with, with, you know, in, insurance companies, right? Like in, you know, a, a, in, in a you know, wrongful death suit or whatever it is, it's like, they yeah. have to value put, put literal value on someone's Money life. And so if Lex is engaging in a similar calculation here, and like you said, taking the emotion out of it, I guess maybe his decision does track in the context of of that character. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I mean, maybe this is where I'll start next week with um, with Lex's inability to love. But, you know, even across Smallville, you know, I, I do like to believe that the friendship that he had with Clark was, you know, was genuine. But, but you know, even from the early stages of that, you know, he s- suspected that there was more to Clark and he had his secret room on, on Clark and and everything. So, you know, this idea of like what Lex is truly, genuinely capable of from an emotional standpoint, I think is a valid question. And so with that in mind, yeah, the sacrificing of Lena, again, I think in that context makes sense. I mean I think overall, you know, it and I I guess I don't say any of this really to to you know, criticize the stories per se, I think it is ultimately a matter of preference, like how much Mm -hmm. you really want to empathize with the villain. I I guess, you know, it's funny, because, like, I don't have these same qualms about, you know, like, Brainiac. But Brainiac's not human. I I guess maybe that's where someone of the line is, and, you know, you look at another villain like Zod, it's like, you do empathize with Zod to a fair extent. It's like, you kind of, you really, like, that's the thing. You get where that guy's coming from. (laughs) So So with Lex, I think that's where... I guess that's the thing. And know this might sound very obvious. But it's like out of all of the villains, he's the most human of them all on paper, but behaves the least human in many respects. There you yeah, go. That's
1: that's a nice way to look at it. That's a nice way to look at it. I'm, sounds sounds like a a good pin. Yeah. For the for the episode, <laughs> I, 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 I'm, there's nothing I'm gonna say that's gonna top that. So. Uh, yeah, I'm with you.
0: That's the tragedy of Lex. So <laughs> we we can't stop here. Is but is there anything else? I know you know we didn't go story by story, but I, th- I mean we we touched on all of them that we had read or watched for this. Was there anything that you know we didn't talk about that you that you would wanted to? Uh,
1: so so I'll end on a on a note of Levin. Um, one of my most favorite Lex Luthor moments, and 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 I fully admit that I am a sucker for a mind swap story. I'm a sucker for it. <laughs> In, in Justice League Unlimited, they do a story where Lex Luthor and Wally West's Flash swap minds. And each, each one of them has this just brilliantly comedic moment. So Lex Luthor in Wally West's body sneaks away to because he, he's got to unmask and finally see who the Flash is. And he gets to the mirror and he rips the mask off and there's this beat, and he just goes, "I don't know who this is," <laughs> it's, and and it's this moment. of, uh, was, I, I love that moment. And on the flip side of it, you've got Wally West in Lex Luthor's body, who, when he realizes he's in this body, he has to sneak away from all the other villains in the, like, the Injustice Gang or whatever, whatever group they're in, and he sneaks away to the bathroom just to compose himself and figure out what to do next. And he has this this meeting with a, a Dr. Phosphorus or one of the others. And then he, he walks out of the bathroom and another villain confronts him and says, wait a minute, did you wash your hands? And he thinks for a moment and says, no, because I'm evil. <laughs> it's just one of those Lex Luthor moments that, that I just love. It's a, it's a great way to play with this character, as you said, is so supremely cruel and inhuman, but do it in a way, it's, it's certainly still consistent with the character, but I, I don't know, I get such a kick out of
0: that. Yeah, that's the great brain robbery. <laughs> And
1: right, right, right,
0: right, right. Uh, I was smiling the whole time you were you were <laughs> laying that out because that was one of the ones that I watched the other night and it, it held up great. It's so funny. It's so funny. And of course, Probably. I know as fans know, but, you know, you know Michael Rosenbaum, vo- you know, voiced the Flash. So right. it's like he was effectively playing Lex Luthor <laughs> right. in that episode. But to his credit, it's like it didn't sound like Lex from Smallville, like he was really Damn. doing Clancy Brown. Like it was great. Yep. It is such a great episode.
1: I agree. For sure. Agree.
0: Well, listen, I'm sorry I kept you so long.
1: No apologies necessary. This was a blast.
0: This was great. I I really had such a great time just kind of delving into into this version of Lex that I spent so much time with in my childhood, but now I can look Mm -hmm. at from an entirely different perspective. So thank you very much, Scott. You will be back on the show this fall for our Death to Wedding event. Uh, You'll be joining me for the final chapter of that, where we'll be looking at the breakup of Lois and Clark, and mm-hmm. then their eventual uh, reconciliation and wedding. So I look forward to comparing notes with you when we get there.
1: Can't wait. And I can't wait to listen to the rest of the episodes in this Lex Luthor series. I'm I'm fascinated by it and can't wait to see what your other guests have to say about it.
0: Well, thank you. And speaking of that, uh, next week we will be joined by sweet, sweet Bernie Gerstmeier, and we'll be talking about The Nemesis. So this week was The Evil Businessman. Next yeah. week will be The Nemesis. And uh, we'll talk about those stories that, again, brought back a number of pre-crisis elements. So there's a lot still to come. Audience, thank you, as always, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Make sure you come back next week. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. The spinoff podcast, Digging for Justice, a DC fan journey, is available now exclusively at patreon.com slash Desiato, starting at the $1 level. New episodes release monthly. And many more rewards are available too, including a robust back catalog of bonus podcasts. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show.